Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Doctor Sleep. When I was a kid, there was a place. A dark place. They closed it down and let it rot. But the things that lived there. They come back. Not many ride the bus this far north. You're running away from something. I'm running away from myself, I guess. You can hear me. You're magic. Like me. I don't know about magic. I always called it the shining. The world is a hungry place. A dangerous place. These people, they hurt people like us. These are the devils. They'll eat watch hands. And they've noticed that little girl. Wow. Hi there. Get out of my head! Get out! I haven't felt power like that in so long. They're coming. Where are we going? There's a place. I'm ready. Yes, you run, dear. And then I will find you. And you will scream for years. Come and play with us forever and ever. Fresh from our Kubrick season with his earlier and later films giving context to his adaptation of The Shining, and with both Stephen King's 1977 book and its long-belated 2013 sequel read, we travel back to the Overlook Hotel under cover of darkness, blanketed in silent, unmoving snow, to re-explore dormant themes, as well as newly introduced ones. While Stanley Kubrick may be a household name in households that appreciate classic cinema, director Mike Flanagan is more of an up-and-comer. He's been helming low-key horror since 2011, with Absentia, Oculus, Hush, Ouija, Origin of Evil, which notably jumped Ouija from a 6% at Rotten Tomatoes to an 82% freshness rating. Before I Wake, which is an excellent Netflix original film, and The Haunting of Hill House series, again for Netflix, as well as the screen adaptation of the Stephen King novel Gerald's Game, which sees Carla Gugino finding it really hard to get out of bed. 
Not to be confused, by the way, with Jerry's game, where a sweet old man plays chess with himself. Now, as we said when we talked about The Shining, Kubrick's celebrated masterpiece has never particularly gripped or affected me. Though doing our show on it certainly has me much more well disposed than I have been in the past. And now, after absorbing it all once again, along with both books and this new film, which I saw twice, I have a handle on why. The two books, back-to-back, were quite engaging and occasionally annoying. I was impressed by how the last page of the first book leads on seamlessly into the first page of one written 36 years later. With this perspective, what we are looking at, what we have always been looking at, is Dan Torrance's story. And now, watching the film, I feel like I'm a big old puzzle piece, and so is the cinematic version of Doctor Sleep. And the two of us just slot together perfectly, our awkward, misshapen sides just seamlessly integrating. And you go back to Kubrick's Shining and set it beside my puzzle piece, and it's this meticulously formed ice cube. It's perfect. Everyone has told me for years, and yes, beholding it now, I can acknowledge that wholeheartedly. But it doesn't slot together with my puzzle piece, because I myself am deeply imperfect. And the implications of that is that anybody who loves The Shining has to, by default, be perfect, but it's an imperfect metaphor, what can I say? As such, I don't expect this film to hit anyone else as hard as it hits me, even Sharon. But I was absolutely riveted from beginning to end, marvelling at how swiftly and elegantly it managed to convey aspects that King himself went around the block with for two books. How it is a suitably warm accompaniment to Kubrick's cold masterpiece, but also a worthy re-establishment of the excised themes from King's original book. The movie of Doctor Sleep manages to be an appropriate, and to me, beyond worthy sequel to both. This is a crystallising of everything truly important in what came before. Folks out there can read into The Shining whatever they wish, and they have, see Room 237. It is densely and intentionally apt for symbolism and interpretation, so it could be about the theft of America from its indigenous people, it could be about the Holocaust, it could be about how the government are all keeping track of us, it could be about genetically modified food, it could also be about the faked Apollo moon landing. But Dr. Sleep, while rich and filled with potential for many take-homes, for me, seemed about one thing in particular. The world is a dangerous place, and there are predators out there. They will always be out there. And sometimes protecting those that need it most requires you to be very, very unselfish. Now, the first thing I'll say, Sharon, is that I really, really, really wish that that scene in Ready Player One was completely different and they didn't go to The Shining. Mm -hmm. We covered Ready Player One and recorded on it a few weeks ago with Lauren, and I went in there ready to have some fun kicking the living shit out of this film. But as it turned out, Lauren really, really likes it. And so that podcast did not go at all the way I expected. We'll release it next year along with the rest of our Spielberg season. But now that I come back and watch Doctor Sleep and we've gone round the Overlook again, it's not that it seemed less special to me because obviously I have, we've just gone back into The Shining really, really hard. So it 
you know, being able to recognize these places felt new. But I know that a lot of audiences are going to feel a weird sense of deja vu to just a couple of years ago when they went back to the Overlook and it was, you know, carefully recreated there. Mm. And I just thought it was war games in the book and that would have been boring as fuck on screen. And you'd have to have, you'd have to endure a CG uh, Matthew Broderick, I'm assuming. But why did it have to be The Shining in Ready Player One? S- Steve, you knew there was a... Well, you, you would have known when you asked for the rights to this. There's a Doctor Sleep book which goes back to the Overlook, or, or at least the area of the Overlook, and there's a Doctor Sleep movie kind of in the works. You, you couldn't have had any other film, like, you know, Gremlins or, I don't know, one of yours, E.T.? This is probably why I'm getting a little bit tired of seeing the blood come out of the elevator. You multiply the amount of times it's in The Shining by the amount of times you see the film. We've seen that fucking blood come out of that elevator 15 times <laughs> just in the past couple of weeks. Yeah. So when it came out in this, I was like, yep, yeah, here comes the blood. And appropriately, Rebecca Ferguson sort of looked at it and went, wow, cool. And then moved on. Like, it's a fucking theme park. <laughs> Third, usually the blood gets off at the second floor. So let's talk about Danny. Danny is a child learning to live with his shine. Now they could have gone all Twilight baby with this thing and they like totally and pasted could. that kid's face over a regular wow. actor, and it's like, do you know what's so much better than that? An actor. Yeah, showing <laughs> young Danny, it was only ever going to be a very small role, unlike. Danny Lloyd in the original Shining mm. and they needed to have somebody who could um, who could still retain some of that innocence but also have a little bit of uh, world weary awareness about him and that is a very difficult thing for a child to convey and we discussed that at length when we did the Shining podcast. And this Danny is a way better how actor than he, the original Danny. He really is and how he does so much more with his tiny amount of screen time. I would say it's almost impossible to for, again these are our opinions folks. Yes, indeed. <laughs> they are we are not stating opinions as facts. We are not alethiometers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the, the, oh, and the by the way, we doesn't are... state opinions as facts. It states opinions as symbols. I don't know. I've seen some of its one-star reviews. <laughs> um, but It's open to interpretation, which means if you give the alethiometer a one-star review, you're actually reviewing yourself. yourself. Much like many mm-hmm. bad reviews against humanity. Absolutely. Anyway, okay, so folks, we're going to go into full spoilers here. In case you hadn't got it, this is a film we recommend you see. It's also a film we recommend you don't get spoiled, so see the film first. Yeah. Even I, though, as you listen to this, it might actually be too late and already out of cinemas. Potentially but. so. But I com- I mean, I completely avoided all reviews until we'd seen it. I mm. saw a couple of, uh, like, the clickbaity bits, people saying that they hadn't particularly enjoyed it. I saw some other people who thought it was incredible. Mm. Um, but I just thought, you know what, I'm not going to Look at anyone else's. I saw a couple of people that I like and respect saying it's all right. I mean, it's not The Shining, and I wanted to bait everyone and go just oh, saw good. Do- <laughs> by going just saw The Shining. It's all right. It's no Doctor Sleep, <laughs> but that would have ended up with loads of Twitter arguments. And here, I can at least state my case a lot more clearly. Indeed, um, but I mean, I I would say, well, no, I'll I'll get to that later. Okay, so Danny um, as a child, Danny as a child, I, how they hit gold with this kid, I don't know. But like I said, at this age, it's very difficult to cast somebody who can really understand what they're doing without telling them so much about what they're doing that you're um, 
potentially abusing them mm. um, and or getting them into a headspace they're not going to like being in and might not be able to get yeah, out of exactly can happen to adults indeed um, but I think they got just the right balance with him mm. uh, so uh, he's living with his mother in Florida and then this horrendous lady from the bathtub in the original comes visiting there's a metaphor through, running throughout this for trauma that the uh, the, the overlook itself, the whole experience was a life-altering trauma for Danny and he can't really ever lay it to rest. Yeah. He's got to live with it. And also the fact that that, that um, situational trauma of what happened in the hotel is combined with the ongoing abuse trauma that he was already experiencing. Yeah. I remember when you were reading me the book and Danny, it, it follows Danny's years, charting them in, in quite a lot of, like, it's a, just a more detail of what a, 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 a burnout he was and, and a, a drunk. And they yeah. and they do it in very short order in the film, which is elegant. And at least it gets you past that phase of, oh, I wanted so much more for you, Danny. Mm. Yeah, that, that carries on for several chapters at the beginning of the book. And by maybe two or three chapters in, I was like, I hate this. I absolutely you hate this. You did say that to me. You were like, yeah. I can't stand this. And I was like, just press on, press yeah. on. Maybe it'll get maybe it'll get a bit more hopeful because it was just yeah, a lot of that kind of like hanging around in bars, getting very drunk, mm. coke and uh, women of loose morals and ill repute and various <laughs> other slightly judgy. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Um, but, but yeah, the essence of the difference there, I think, is that the there's so much that you can present visually in a film um, that in a book, the only way to really get the emphasis across, you can't just say it once. And it, it does get a little bit frustrating. And I suspect this is one of the issues that you have with reading generally, is that lengthy novels especially tend to... Uh, reiterate the things that are themically relevant to make sure that they've gone in. Yes. Whereas a film only needs to do it once because you're effectively, with a film, you're using three senses at the same time to impress something upon somebody. You've got the visual element, you've got the... uh, Audio, as in the words are going into your ears accompanied by music or background sound or whatever to, to kind of reinforce what's actually happening. And then you've got the language element of the text that's then going into your brain. With a book, you only have the text. Also, if you're in the Super 4D uh, X experience you get jogged around in your seat and you get to feel the wind and the, the rain in your face and they may even include smell of vision uh yeah there is that i'm really glad i couldn't smell that bar he was in yep. um but just um, shit and beer yeah although the book does describe the smell extensively yep, actually brilliant. which possibly if you've got a particularly vivid imagination mm. might enhance that a bit however the going to the bathroom in the middle of the night and being terrified to go in there and mm. being visited by a malevolent woman yeah. sixth sense yeah i'm gonna say mike flanagan's definitely been inspired by the sixth sense it is throughout this film and that's as we've said before when we did this in an extensive show one of our absolute favorite supernatural dramas yeah. uh but i don't i, I feel like um, stephen king's also watched the sixth sense and kind of taken a little on board because just that the setup was similar in the book in terms mm. of um that sense of powerlessness as a child building upon what had already been established in The Shining, but also working towards something more of a acceptance, with a middle-aged, sad man being given a weighty task. Um, it never says in either, the fil- either of the films 
who this old lady is. Uh, if you remember, in the original book, we never get to see Danny meet her. We get the after effects, and that's the same in the film. But um, the woman is a woman named Lorraine Massey, which, as soon as you say her name, you're like, oh, so it's just a woman. And she uh, was... Uh, middle-aged and she brought a young man to the hotel and they fucked and they took various drugs and uh, then he tired of her and left her alone and she killed herself in the bathtub Mm. but she wasn't she didn't resemble this old hag uh my uh, you know the description was just of a sort of a middle-aged red-haired woman somewhere between the um the unnerving naked woman and the unnerving old naked woman Mm. but it would appear this is the representation of how horrendous she was inside, which is uh, also, you know, a lot of that is just the overlook taking over. Yeah, how horrendous she appeared to Danny, I would be inclined to say, rather than how horrendous she was inside. I think the way, the the fact that you learn a little bit more about her setup in the original hmm. book. She's kind of a uh, It may just be pitiful me, but figure. she's, yeah, she's more like the the... The suicide is something that comes from despair and sadness more mm. than out of a, um, an evil or anything like that. But she's been... It's like those negative emotions have seeped into the hotel mm. and the feedback loop have t- has turned her into something terrifying. She's motivated by a very primal want, mm. desire. I want this thing. Yeah. Let me have you. <laughs> That's a good comparison, actually, because in a lot of interpretations on Wuthering Heights, Kathy, especially older interpretations, Kathy is read as a horror simply by virtue of the fact that she is a ghost. Yeah. But I never read her that way, even as a small child. She was more pitiful? I was about eight when I read Wuthering Heights for the first time, so... Either way, the actual the image of this creepy old woman just uh, in in both occasions when she comes out of the bathtub and she's got this kind of oh yeah definitely gonna have a child for breakfast look on her face. Mm. We don't get to meet her the first time properly, but the second time will be would be after he's spoken with Dick Halloran. Now Dick was alive in the book for mm. the first few chapters because he survived the events of the original book. Yeah, there's I, I think. They have some interactions when Danny's a child and those actually take place while they're both physically in the same space together. And then when it flashes forward to Danny as an adult, he goes back and looks for Dick and finds out that he passed away some time ago. In terms of actual physical events following on from the Kubrick film, rather than trying to attempt to follow on from the book, but it does retain the themes and the motivations of the book so it's a, it's kind of it converts them to yeah. accommodate for what happened in the film that everyone's seen as opposed to the book that not many have read absolutely and the fact that that stylistically flanagan's direction is so much more warm and emotionally engaging than kubrick's for me and i said i think i said this to you when we were walking home afterwards this is what I feel like other people who love The Shining, Kubrick's The Shining, got out of The Shining. Engagement. Yeah. I, I think people who adore that film connected with it in a way that I only connect with this one. Yeah. So uh, uh, old Dick, ghost Dick, tells him about his horrendous grandfather. They go into more 
seedy detail in the book. Uh, uh, in the book, I think it's an uncle. Oh, okay. Either way, sneaky uncle. But it's yeah. pretty fucking grim. It's, yeah. And uh, shows him this psychic lockbox that he's created, which he effectively puts these malevolent ghosts, wraiths, into to capture them. And then puts that inside his head. And I love the fact that when Danny finally does this with Mrs. Massey, it's this wonderful, decisive moment of just like, okay, I'm going to go there, going to meet this thing head on. And she's like getting out of the tub going, ah, yes. And he closes the door with absolute dignity. We don't see what happens, but we just hear her scream. And then he just goes, and then comes back and sits on the couch to watch um, Tom and Jerry. No, Bugs Bunny. Mm. I noticed the second time, it's a Bugs Bunny cartoon where he's being cooked and to be eaten, and he switched what they're cooking for a doll of himself and goes and hides behind a rock and goes, Ah, you're killing me! Which is a little nod forwards to the switcheroo uh, with the yeah, doll, the which mannequin. they don't do yeah. in the film. Mm. So it's a little nod to that. Yeah, that's nice. And also it's an allusion to the fact that uh, Danny is called Doc. Indeed. So it's like many things at once happening here with Bugs. Yes. Um, but... Yeah, Danny effectively turns his inner demons into something that he can actually put a lock on. Mm, Yeah. And that in itself presents issues, which we will come back to at the end, Mm. because that's the whole point. He gets, you know, they're in there. They're not destroyed. He doesn't even know what's happened to them. Mm. He even asks, you know, um, and speculates. But... Uh, yeah, he asked Dick later on, you know, mm. are they alive in there? Are they? Uh, part of the way this happens in the book had me a little uncertain whether I was comfortable with the portrayal of it because mm. it's, as well as it being the locking up of literal ghosts in Danny's yeah. case, um, it's also uh, symbolic of the locking up of ghosts of, of traumatic events yeah. and abuse and, and it's almost bad like, things that uh, happened in uh, Walling them up. Exactly. And They're still there. The, yeah. And, the, and I've never been comfortable with the idea that how you deal with traumatic memories and, and experiences that um, that have hurt you is to just close a door on them and then basically you have to spend the rest of your life leaning on that door, which is mm. exhausting. Um, but the fact that it's done in such a way as to be... Dick gives him this very strong visual image of... He gives he gives him a real uh, lockbox, which obviously in the book he is physically giving him this this box. Yeah. In, the, in the film it's... It's a, a metaphorical lockbox. Metaphorical lockbox. lockbox. But he explains to him that you, you've got to, you learn it really well. So you know exactly what this box looks like, um, what it feels like, what's inside it. And then when you've placed the, the trauma in that box, you then put it somewhere where you don't have to worry about it anymore. And in Danny's case, it's this ice cavern. In the film, it's the hedge maze where his father ended up um, losing him and dying. Oh, that would explain it then. It looked like an, just an ice cave to me, but yeah, the maze. It's in the maze. Okay. It ends up being like stacks of these bo- uh, right. lock boxes drifting back into the darkness. Gotcha. Okay, so um, so that actually does kind of fit with the idea that, and I, I think we talked about this with in relation to something else before. A traumatic memory is never going to go away because ultimately 
it would if if that happened it would serve no purpose because the reason that your brain locks on to bad things that have happened to you is so that it can figure out ways to get out of that situation if it happens again mm. and once you've integrated that memory and kind of your your uh, brain has come to the conclusion that the event itself is no longer any use and no longer serves any purpose, it becomes diffused. And that's when it doesn't cause that setting off of panic and uh, reaction to it anymore. And effectively, that's what Danny's doing. He puts it in the box and then puts that box in another, another box, box and then mails that box to himself and then, and then smashes it with a hammer. hammer well no he doesn't because he doesn't that would do that, destroy no. it and the thing inside <laughs> no but effectively what he's doing is he's containing it in the box the box is locked he knows the box so well he it, it's not a door that he has to lean on all the time that's the point it's something that he can just close lock and then put away and not really have to worry too much about mm-hmm. um, and then the uh, the fact that there's then ice which keeps it chilled and contained um and yeah then- that's actually quite ni- uh, nicely symbolic because ultimately his father's shade is frozen is frozen there yeah. and that's that's a really good way of showing they're not dead they're in storage indeed his dad and if it's if it's in the maze then that's even more significant because his dad is in there already he's mm. just not in a box um, but he is, as you say, entombed in the ice that, that contained him at the end. So there's there's then sort of this element of, well, if, if things are in a maze, they can't get out easily to get to you because they'd have to work their way out through the maze, which they don't know. Mm. So it's, it's kind of, there's all these layers of... Um, numbing and diffusing and um, taking the sting out of the traumatic memory so that even though you know it's still there, it's not got the same impact on you as it, it would if you hadn't done anything with it. Well, I hadn't even thought about the idea of storing them in a labyrinth so that even if they did get out, they're still just wandering. Mm. Uh, Carl Lumbly playing uh, Dick Halloran. Um, this is uh, John Jones from uh, Justice League, the Martian really? Manhunter. Oh, he was so good. <sighs> Much like many of the performances in this film, they could have gone over the top. Mm. And my fear, although at the time when I first heard about this film coming, I didn't have that much invested, but it began to grow over the uh, um, coming weeks, mm. uh, was that they would overplay this stuff or that he would simply do like a... You know how Brandon Routh did a caricature of Christopher Reeve rather than making Superman his own? Mm. Uh, but Lumbly managed to give you... Dick Halloran, someone unmistakably Dick Halloran, but just with a few little inflections that made it like, like there's a point when he's talking to Danny later on and he sort of juts his chin out just in a kind of, I know this makes me look like uh, Scatman Crothers. And it really just tied that thread between the two. Yeah. And one of the things that I really appreciated about the way he was presented as well, um, and obviously this is in part to do with how he, he makes contact with him in the book anyway, there's a difference in the way ghosts which are being used by negativity and a collection of what, for shorthand's sake, we'll call evil, and they appear in a very uh, anxiety-evoking, visually disturbing way. Mm -hmm. And when... Danny's memory of somebody is positive. They don't come across that way at all. They're just they're just there. They're just themselves. Mm. 
Again, much like the sixth sense. Yeah. Okay. One of the things that's been that's said within this story and has been said about this story is that the idea that we go on in any form after our death is an optimistic one. Mm. And what I think this really does for me is tie together the idea that the the afterlife and memory are the same thing, or at least so functionally the same thing that it actually doesn't matter whether they are separate things or not. Mm. Remembering people after they have gone means that they are not gone. Oh, we're in Coco territory now, aren't we? Mm. Hmm. And uh, although I, I just equated it with The Sixth Sense, I think that both films actually handle the malevolent spirits in much the same way. I don't necessarily want to use the word evil, mm. although there's definitely evil in this film. Not in a kind of a paintbrush, everything bad is evil. There is anger and spite and just selfish, lonely greed in all of them. Uh, greed is a good way of putting it, actually, because that's, I mean, this is something that we've discussed before, that, that there are a lot of representations of evil not necessarily just within horror. Often this happens outside of horror. But people whose obsession with not dying, people who are so afraid of, if we go back to this idea that afterlife and memory are the same thing, people who are so terrified that they will not be remembered well, mm. that they will do whatever it takes to not let themselves die. And ironically, that is makes it less likely that they're going to be remembered well. Not fans of the Christmas Carol, then. No. The whole point well, of that book being. Well, they've kind being... of missed that whole thing, yeah. really. Which obviously those were exactly the people that Dickens was trying to um, tweak the nose of. There is still time. You can live a good life. Yeah. That's all he really meant. Mm. And again, the uh, aggressive, frightful ghosts in the, the Sixth Sense seem to be hungry for attention from Cole. Yeah. They want to be acknowledged. Mm. Yeah. And they, the way they do that is by um, evoking shock. Mm. Yeah. And obviously that's one of the things that causes us the greatest negative tension in life is being ignored because that goes back to a fundamental survival instinct when we're babies, that if we are ignored, we die. Because mm. for those first few months of life, um, and well, really for the first few years of life, if we aren't sustained by someone else... We literally can't survive. We can't take care of ourselves. Which leads us to the grim flashback. Uh, now, this bit in the uh, book when uh, he uh, attempts to steal money from this um, woman that he's uh, slept with the night before, and she's lying in her own vomit in the bed, drunk and coked out of her mind. Um, in the book, her little baby comes toddling towards the table covered in coke and goes, Candy! And Stephen King keeps coming back to this moment again. Canny, 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 canny. And this is like, okay, Stephen, we get that at some point in your life, one of your kids wandered in while you were doing coke and said, what's that? Can I have some? Or something to that effect. Mm. And you cannot get that horrible memory out of your head. Or even if it never happened, it came close yeah. enough that that was It was a nightmare that you imagined might happen. Yeah. But uh, and, and and this he's just letting it out and and he it's running rampant throughout the book. This bit happened so many times. I had to ask you, can you stop just saying candy? Yeah. Just say that word. I'm not allowed to say. 
It's like, my God. The C word. (laughs) (laughs) But in the film, it's one scene, the child is insensible, and it's all situational. You're like, okay, so the kid is wandering around. There is cocaine there. You can put that stuff together. And then he puts the kid on the bed with the unconscious mother. And then he's, like I said, he was about to steal from her wallet after saying, well, she's took money from me and bought the coke, so it's only fair. And Dick Halloran plays Jiminy Cricket, or Jiminy Dickett, and says, oh, son, you're going to steal from this woman? Look look at them, they've got nothing. In the end, does he actually steal from her? I think he does, yeah. Yeah, well... He he, definitely does in the book. In the film, he walks away after seeing this haunting image of a baby looking at its unconscious mother and just knowing this is not a good situation, but um, I can't be part of it. And they uh, ultimately die off screen and her ghost and the babies visits him later on to tell him that they're dead, but it's okay. She liked him. Uh, She mentions that in the book, whereas in the film, it's just like lays hauntingly upon her face. And then he just wrenches himself awake and spots the bottle uh, and then realizes this reminded me of Charles Xavier in uh, Days of Future Past, one of the few good elements of, of that um, mixed bag. Uh, there's some good stuff in there, but James McAvoy uh, uses a um, inhibiting drug to keep his mind dull mm. because he can't take listening to and feeling everybody's pain all the time. It's too much, but in doing so... Uh, he is relinquishing his duty to the world. Mm, yeah. You know, he could be doing something really good for the world, but he's choosing to hide from it. And Danny drinks to subdue The Shining. Absolutely. And and this, the way the scene with this woman and the dream is presented, it could be that she is a literal ghost appearing in the same way as Mrs. Massey did. It could be that she is just the traumatic memory of his greatest moment of shame. Mm. Um, and ultimately, the his the fact that his response up to this point has been to reach for the bottle kind of makes the point that it doesn't really matter what the difference is between the two. Yeah. They, the effect on him is the same, it's what, same thing. Yeah. And his response is the same thing. The, the bottle... The, the booze that he's been reaching for all these years is effectively another form of lockbox, but it's not actually as useful because it has a lot of negative effects that the lockboxes don't have. And in the book, um, it does state that he has a newer lockbox, which this woman is in. Right. But again, it's kind of ambiguous as to whether it is her literal ghost or just the memory of it. That would have come off as cruel and confusing to the audience. Potentially so, so I'm yes. I'm glad they didn't put yeah. that in the film. Yeah. But what they do do in the book, which uh, is not really touched on in the film, is they keep coming back to that moment as being the thing he can't tell anybody. Yeah. And it's pointed out to him, and this is this is one of the sort of fundamental tenets of dealing with alcoholism, that there are there are secrets that you're trying to repress when you drink. 
Um, you know, they could be in any form. It could be a physical thing. It could be a, an experience that you're trying to repress, like his experiences of The Shining. It could be that The Shining is dulled when he's drunk, and that's one reason why. Oh does yeah, it? no, that's made. That's uh, part of the text. Of the yeah, film. Uh, it, it could be literal memories that you can't share with anybody, and that one of the benefits of seeking support and uh, specifically therapy is that you get to share those secrets in an environment where you will not be judged for them. Mm-hmm. And once those things are out, maybe you'll realise they're not so bad. Maybe they'll still be terrible, but you'll be able to come to grips with the fact that they've been, they've passed, and you don't have to live in them all the time. Um, but the point being that as long as those things remain unshared, you will keep drinking because you have something that you need to suppress. Mm-hmm. I've got the question here, who was Tony? We speculated back on the Shining episode Mm. uh, that uh, he was Danny's older self trying to warn him from the future. Uh, And that kind of plays into the 1997 TV version. Mm. And it's an interpretation of the book. Uh, And they're still kind of coquettish about it in Doctor Sleep because apparently Tony's talking to other people. Does Tony talk to... Uh, Abra makes her first connection with Tony. She thinks Dan is Tony's dad. Right. Yeah. Uh, Whereas in the film, in one sentence, they explain the whole thing away, which is, I used to speak to it. I thought it was uh, uh, my imaginary friend. I called it Tony. It's saying The Shining was Tony. It's just your inner voice telling telling you things that you don't actually know because you're sensing it. Mm -hmm. It is making sense of extrasensory perception. Absolutely. And and I think, again, this was something that I'd, I'd suggested might be a possibility that rather than a literal older self from the future Mm. uh, version of Danny, that Tony could be an older um, element of his psyche that he was uh, externalising and communicating with. Yeah. I like either of those explanations way better than uh, uh, the idea of keeping Tony. Some things I like keeping mysterious and other things actually work better when you say, no, 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 they are a metaphor for blah, blah, blah. Mm. Rarely, however, to think are things so much better when you quantify them down to logical physics. I saw a, uh, a video uh, available on YouTube saying, there are no ghosts in The Shining. And here is a 25-minute dissertation on oh, yeah. why it's all in everybody's <laughs> heads. Yeah. And uh, fair enough, that is a, that is a reading. And I'm, I didn't get to the bit or watch it at all, but I, I would be there'll be some interesting hoops to jump through to uh, how Jack got let out of the fridge. Indeed, yes. But I, I think my my favourite version of things like that is where you have... Uh, oh, speaking of which, locked in the fridge. Is another way of, another way of containing him in, in yeah. cold. Yeah. yeah. Although he's locked in the larder rather than the refrigerator. Yeah, I'm assuming it was pretty cold in there. I would guess so. They wouldn't so, want to warm yeah. up the uh, no, pasta. Indeed. And potatoes. <laughs> and, and peanut butter. And Oreos. Oreos. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I like when you have a symbol that means one thing on one level and something else on another another level and ideally something else on another level and they don't counter each other out to pin it down and say Tony was literally just Danny's imaginary friend it came entirely from his uh, Mm. imagination to me kind of you you throw too much baby out with the bathwater you're trying there is a desperation especially in film culture to younger film culture uh, these youngsters in more recent film culture to put things into boxes to quantify them to say right these are the rules these are the parameters this is precisely what happened uh, let us end all debate on this 
theories, which again makes art static and says no room for further interpretation. Absolutely. This is the literal thing that happened. And I, I actually had a thought on this the other day, and it, it tied into an article that I'd seen about um, pickup artists mm-hmm. and why is it that after 50 years or so mm. of them doing what they do, there's still this, um, there appears to be this very toxic need for the way they tell you you can manipulate the world and I came to the conclusion I could be way off on this um, but it's it's all about algorithms people who find it difficult to deal with the chaos in the world will sometimes cling to the idea that if you can boil it down to an algorithm do x therefore y it will make things much more simple and straightforward and explainable, and therefore they don't have to be scared of the chaos anymore. It's the chaos that's scary. I was watching an H Bomber guy video about uh, a specific pickup artist, this miserable bastard, uh, who, in his own words in the book, says that this formula will fail nine times out of ten. Then why are you following the formula? Mm. Mix it up a bit. Maybe tailor how you respond to different women in different ways. Maybe listen to what they have to say. You might even enjoy it. Mm. But his rules are all about just do it compulsively. And sex is not a thing to be enjoyed. You're just basically putting a meat sausage down a hallway. But you got to do it. It's like, if you're going to live your life by this weird code that doesn't work most of the time just to do something you don't want to do, why are you doing it? (laughs) Do something else. Take up darts. Indeed, and and ultimately, I think one of the reasons I okay when I was at school and I did my GCSEs, I kind of ended up with a similar level of grade in both science and math subjects and English and languages, and I had both areas of the school kind of trying to push me to go their way for A level, and. Uh, the I ended up deciding that I wanted to go the uh, English and languages route and did theatre as well and, and kind of went in that direction. And the reason is that a symbol for me will always tell me more than an algorithm. Mm. Mm. Because you can you can use it, get what you need from it, and for for that particular situation, and then when the situation changes, you can come back to it and get something else from it. Yeah, or you can use that symbol later on and go, well, this applies here as well, and then you can go further yeah. and re- further explore. The algorithm will fail you if it, by its own design, doesn't work most of the time Absolutely. and doesn't apply to most things. And Absolutely. only yeah, mm. yeah. either way, uh, logic and art are not necessarily the greatest of bedfellows. Indeed. And this is why people who ask me for the correct interpretation on various stories and films are going to be met with a very nonplussed Mm. expression. You can't think through this one, John. You have to feel it. (laughs) Exactly. God, I love Ellie Sattler. Even and especially with purple hair. Mm -hmm. Ewan McGregor as Dan. (laughs) He gives this dramatic, understated performance. And I just kind of forgot that he's not American. He had this sort of soft... uh, neutral accent and never overplayed anything he was kind of this rumpled beaten guy not a sad sack but sad again Malcolm Crowe in uh, uh, Sixth Sense yeah I think one of the ways his performance really works as well and this is a bit of a departure from the book at least the way I read Dan's character um, is that he brings in elements of Danny 
he brings in elements of the child. Yeah. And you can and almost everything he does, with a with a couple of exceptions, where he is required to behave in a specifically very adult and practical and sensible way. Mm. Everything he does and every encounter that he has, you can see that child underneath. And that's a really powerful thing for an actor to be able to do. We've we've talked before about one of the best elements of the performances that we love is when an actor is able to convey multiple emotions um, in the same period of time, in the same moment, and to be able to convey multiple facets of your own psyche and personality and put all that on your face and in your tone and in your body language. Jesus, that's hard. That's it, it, People don't do it in real life because we, we... I mean, obviously, sometimes it comes out. But to have control over it, to be able to, uh, to do it in a way that communicates what you want to communicate, that's so hard. And he pulls it off with complete aplomb. And somebody said to me, I can't remember who it was, but somebody said they weren't that... Uh, keen to see Doctor Sleep because they really like Ewan McGregor, but only when he has his own accent. I understand that it's a it's a wonderful accent, mm. but it does mean most of his career. I was just going to say, miss. but he he uses his own accent so rarely. <laughs> you're basically watching Shallow Grave and Train Spotting mm. on a loop. Yeah, <laughs> which will get depressing after a while. Yeah. I jokingly said before we uh, saw this, and I made a little uh, uh, photoshopped an image together. Oh, this is the one where Ewan McGregor goes back to that place where his father went bonkers and meets his imaginary friends again. And it was Danny in the Overlook, uh, little Danny on the tricycle, uh, big wheel, sorry, uh, with Pooh and Piglet at the end of the corridor instead of the twins. Because he also played Christopher Robin, and there's some parallels there. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. (laughs) But I also muttered to you while we were watching it, oh, no, wait, this is that Ewan McGregor film where he gets put in the charge of a obscenely powerful psychic child mm. and uh, things go very wrong. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, no, luckily, he uh, things played out differently from Anakin. Yes. Um, Abra does not turn into Darth Vader, that we know of. From my point of view, people who don't suck the blood of children are evil. There was a symbolic moment in the book which repeats and is referenced briefly in the film, which is the flies. When uh, Danny, as an adult, or even as a kid, sees someone who is dying, then you, th- there are flies all over their face. And he says, regarding his mother, and this is directly from the book, by the end, she had flies covering her face. And th- yeah, this warning was obscuring her entire vision, which interestingly sort of ties in with the whole Roke Mallet destruction, Mm. uh, where you can't see the face anymore. Mm. But it also said that they went away just before she died. Mm. And he warns a friend of his, is it Billy? Cliff Curtis's character. Cliff Curtis's character in the the, uh, film. Uh, You know, when he can see flies in his face, get yourself seen. Mm. And uh, Billy goes in, finds out that it's cancer, gets it dealt with and owes his life to Danny as a result. Mm. He, he becomes effectively kind of his Chewbacca. Yeah, I think it, it's it's never explicitly stated in the book that it's cancer, but it's it's something like that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So effectively, The Shining is warning Danny that people are that he is seeing are at a point where death is hovering over them yeah. and could go either way. Mm. And if they do something about it, now that's a disgusting image to put in a film. That is a horror film, more of a cheap horror film, a nasty one. 
to, uh, to, to throw at the audience. So I think they referenced it and they put a little bit of that, the fly, the flies in, in, in a weirdly appropriate situation when he sees the, this poor woman and her baby mm. uh, with its, you know, weird Twilight baby CGI mouth. But they didn't actually use it for when people were starting to die around Danny and then he helped them. Because basically he becomes an orderly. Uh, he, when he pulls himself together, he uh, becomes an orderly at a hospice and his job is to help people. It's not his official job, but they work out very soon enough that they want him there when they finally go. And he helps them go peacefully. He helps them access their memories. It reminded me very much of To The Moon. I even put on the music from To The Moon when you were reading a specifically uh, very emotional moment in the book. In the film, they hone in on the other element of, of seeing that someone's close to the end, which is the cat that I'd actually forgotten was in the book, but it's such a prominent part of the film. This cat goes to the room of the person who's about to die. And I think the black flies all over the face would have obfuscated the philosophy of the film, which is the peaceful acceptance of death rather than the horror and disgust at it and fighting against it. Yeah, you, it's very difficult to accept grave flies all over the face as well it was just his time and also i think the fact that they frame that i normally i'm a big fan of show not tell but the fact that they frame that particular element as something that he talks about with somebody mm. so he does share it we do know that that's something that he sees but it reinforces something i said about the difference between the book of the shining and the film of the shining which is that the book is from the point of view if you, if you think of them as uh, as therapeutic uh, activities. The book is from the perspective of the, the patient or the client and they're talking about themselves and their experiences with through all of their lenses and, and um, damaged windows and, and all the rest of it. It's their perspective on, on what they've been through and how they feel about it. Whereas the film felt very much like the point of view of a medically trained psychiatrist who's looking at this in a very cut and dried way and looking to apply medical interventions um, that they have a very set idea of and they believe will impact the patient in certain ways. The book of Dr. Sleep then felt like an extension of the client perspective, only now we've moved from Jack to Danny and it's it's the next generation's uh, reinterpretation of the trauma that they've been through as a child and how that's impacted on them as they've grown up. Um, and then the film version of Dr. Sleep is, again, it's the trained professional's perspective, but instead of being this very clinical medical psychiatrist that Kubrick was, it's more what we would interpret a therapist to be now, somebody who is warmly listening and offering empathy and understanding and taking on board what the, the client feels and offering some insight that comes in from a third party but not in a cold judgmental way so to be told about the flies is more appropriate in that scenario because that's what will happen with therapists clients will talk about terrible things that have happened to them and terrible things that they've experienced but you don't you don't see them they're not reenacted there in the therapy room you don't experience them personally you experience them through the filter of the client and that actually can provide uh, more of an empathetic sense to it because there's that removal that means that you don't have to go through your own 
traumatic reaction to that. Like you said, if we saw the flies, we'd be so busy going, oh, that's gross, that we wouldn't be engaging with what they meant, what they represented. And the only way that they could convey acceptance would be the flies fucking off. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then it would be it would become too much about that visual image. Yeah. Yeah. So again, very well handled by um, Mike Flanagan. Okay, so now we come to Kylie Curran as Abra Stone, Stephen King's salute to Generation Z. This young lady is this walking endorsement of just let the kids do what they need to do. They're smart, they're resourceful, they are wildly competent. They can handle it. Mm -hmm. It is so refreshing to see an old-ass boomer write something like this. Yeah, and motherfuck can they see through your bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) Is the Uh, other thing. She almost tilts towards the... uh, hmm, That thing people said about Ray. Uh, (laughs) I'm not even going to say it, because just such bullshit, uh, especially in the book, because she's... She never puts a foot wrong. Every one of her plans uh, uh, seems to pan out. Mm. Uh, She's rich, she's popular, she has this psychic gift. Yeah. However... However, if you directly compare it to Stephen King's earlier work, Carrie, which I very strongly got when there's the scene in the uh, supermarket with the exploding glass window, I was like, oh, is there going to be like a reboot of Carrie where she's one of Abra's classmates? Unlikely. Carrie was poor. Carrie's mother was abusive and terrible, and it was a house of ignorance. Everything about Carrie's power could only have resulted in terror and pain and death. Oh, fucking hell. Whereas Abra is raised in love and understanding by rich parents who want the best for her and give her all of the opportunities, and she's allowed to be this Mozart wunderkind, and as a result, she has all the space and all the support and all the timing to be able to work this shit out on her own, and she also just happens to have been born smart as hell and very intuitive, so she's very good at sort of... And also the amount of media she's got her hands-on with, which explores this exact kind of stuff, puts her in the perfect position to be someone who could master The Shining. I don't know why this didn't occur to me before, mm-hmm. but Carrie has The Shining. You think? And... So do some of the kids in it. The kid in Firestarter? Yeah. Has The Shining. Yeah. You've got a little bit of magic and, in you too. Yeah, and Pennywise, that's what he's... Eating. We'll talk about Pennywise in a bit. Whoa! Okay, right, so the tasty, castle... Tasty, tasty fear. So the Castle rock verse Before you start typing, no, we haven't seen the Castle Rock TV show. We definitely will at some point. But The Shining is, like, infused through so many of his stories. Mm-hmm. It's you helped, can even it's see helped it. by its vagueness. Oh my, it, yeah, it's definitely <laughs> helped by its vagueness, but you can even see it in Pet Cemetery And the Dark Tower. Oh, definitely in the Dark Tower, yeah, but oh my god. He's oh. basically been doing a Marvel Universe and an X-Men since the word go, yeah. simply because of a similar theme. Like, the ghost that's trying to help the family in Pet Cemetery, yeah, is just not very good at it. Yeah. If he was better, that he might have been able to pre- prevent disaster. Potentially so, yeah. And the, the cemetery has become infused with negative shining mm-hmm. and that's what's bringing the pe- them back their false faces yeah you don't want to go down that road 
So yeah, I mean, it really falls to the new creators to somehow blend all of these together. Like, get Andy Machete working with Mike Flanagan. They'll be the uh, the modern-day versions of Frank Darabont and Rob Reiner, the only people who managed to get the spiritual take on King correct. Yeah. Oh, my life. They'd be like the Russo brothers for yeah. this. But, oh my God, now I need to recollect all of the Stephen King books and read them with that take. Okay, do that for me and I will listen. Mm. We will eventually probably do Carrie, but it's going to be sad compared with this. Yeah, a little bit. And it'll just be the opposite of what we're saying. Yeah, Carrie never had a chance. Mm. Anyway, um, so Abra is young. Uh, She is multiracial. She is smart and intuitive. She knows about the world more than most kids. She's very good at research. And uh, she's compassionate and brassy and... There are some times when I was just like, this is my favorite Stephen King character ever. Because she looks like the future. She looks like what we hope the future will be. Yeah, absolutely. And the the degree of agency that she gets in this story, particularly in the film version, Mm. uh, because in in the book there are a few elements where she basically becomes a parcel and has to be carried around from place to place to do the thing. Yeah, I mean, because there is still lots of interaction with her and she still talks to people a lot, she doesn't really feel like... She's been reduced quite to that level. I suppose that would be her flaw. She's uh, ultimately still a small girl, and you can get the drop on her because mm-hmm. of her naivete. Yeah. And that that means that she's not just like, oh, I was captured, but I got out of that easily. Yeah. Uh, I think she's That's well, what makes her not a Mary Sue. She's a little bit older in the film as well. I yeah. think in the book she's 11 or 12, and in the she's book... She's 13 in the film, yeah. In the film they specifically state she's 13, yeah. Which, which does, again, like that difference between... Uh, a five-year-old Danny and the theoretical nine-year-old Danny that we discussed, mm-hmm. um, there is a lot of mental maturing that takes place in the process of going between 11 and 13. Mm. You said that in the book she has more interactions, more friends, more just general connections yeah, there's to the more, world. there's more people around her. I mean, some of it seems to be a little bit pasting on thick, the idea of everybody loves Abra, she's wonderful. Um, <laughs> and she has such gorgeous hair. Exactly. Um, but it does kind of make her feel a little bit like... In the, in the film, I appreciated that she was a bit more geeky, a bit more isolated. Basically, if you take whatever biological gene or thing The Shining is an expression of, Mm -hmm. it stands to reason that it would be some kind of survival trait. Mm. If your life is perfect, if you are incredibly well-supported, well-off, privileged out the ass, it's not that those characteristics aren't going to be there, it's that you you won't have the experiences that bring them to the fore. Mm. That that basically, if, if you're like... Okay, let's take Carrie as an example. If you are constantly feeling dunked on and abused and surrounded by trauma... And that you're filthy and sinful and terrible as a person. Then those things will come out to defend you. Um, And it's almost like Amber in the book doesn't need it. Yeah. Or at least doesn't need it quite so much. And King worked out early on, oh, hey, a little girl hanging around with a middle-aged white dude. This is going to look bad. So uh, Dan is uncomfortable with that, and Abra is the one uh, going, no, 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 it's fine. And, you know, you're my uncle. We're all kind of, like, technically connected way. But they play it even better in the film with you and McGregor being like, nah, I'm really just, like, you know, you can't be... Well, there's a, there's a different slant on it in the film as well. In the book, it's part of a prearranged... They, they've there's been more internet for in, a while... Yeah. 
Um, he gets her email address. They talk that way, yeah. and then whereas they this, arrange to meet. Whereas, it being all in their heads, and the the blackboard on the wall was that part of the film? Yeah, uh, that's in the book. Yeah, she, okay, he right. has a blackboard in his room, and she writes messages yeah. on it. That's how he gets her email address in the first place. But in the in like I say in the book, they've arranged to meet, and they have this agreement that they're going to say that he's her uncle. Mm. In the film, she just turns up, yeah. and he's like, "You're a 13 year old girl. You can't be yeah, sitting this here is talking not, to me. Yeah. This is people think this is weird." Um, so yeah, that, that's well handled in the, the fact that they have to get through that barrier of, uh, of, of what this actually, the optics on this one. There is another link between them, which is very soap opera-ish, and I had completely forgotten about. Sharon just reminded me, it's very like, someone's just like, I must reveal my deep dark secret, and then they cross to the window on the other side of the room and say it to the window. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Drum roll, kids. Okay. So... In the book, the, they, they meet up and they have this agreement that they're going to say that Danny is her uncle. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, there's this whole thing around Abra's theory of relativity, which is that all people who have the shining are connected in some way anyway, whether that be genetically or whether that be... Um, by blood. Uh, uh, by, by... Just by the fact that they are all the same type of person. <clears throat> At the end of the book, uh, and this doesn't happen at all in the film, and my God, I was so glad it didn't. It's, it's less it's terrible not, than I'm making it no, sound. It's, 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 but it is a bit like crowbarred in. It's not awful, but it's a bit like, really? Was that absolutely necessary? And I think it would have it taken... It is for up, those obsessed with lineage. Well, that's true. It would have taken up way too much real estate in the, in the film, so I'm really glad that it wasn't there. And it didn't need to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it eventually transpires. There's been this whole thread laid down whereby uh, Abra's mother was raised by her grandmother because Abra's grandmother died in a car accident when her child was quite young. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's all to do with how they have this very close relationship and they're all very connected with each other and everything. Um, and there are hints that Abra's great-grandmother may have a little bit of The Shining herself and mm-hmm. that, that you assume that that's the line down which she's got it. Mm-hmm. It then turns out... <sighs> And how it all comes out, I can't even remember. We the are making details, a meal of this one, but it's very strangled. Well, so did Stephen King, so you know. He was like, "Okay, I think you're finished eating. Here is a quail for you. <laughs> Have a lamprey pie and some lemon cake." Um, so <laughs> it turns out that while Danny was very young, his father had an affair with a. a an intern or a research student or somebody who worked at the school that he was working at and the school where he beat up that kid in the parking lot she became pregnant and then had the child and was then killed in a car accident I thought that that was then going to tie in with the car accident that Jack experienced that caused him to stop drinking no it's a different car accident it's a Always with the car, car accident, accident. Or at Steve. Least there's, there's no way I don't know, to, were you in some kind of car accident? There's no way to conclusively tie the two together, but that would have made so much more sense. I mean, this is a guy who we've already established breaking his son's arm does not stop him drinking. Mm. That car accident was the thing that stopped him drinking. If she'd been in the car at the time and died, that would really explain it. But anyway. Short um, of it is. But that was Abra's grandmother. So... Uh, basically, Danny is like her half uncle. Danny is her blood. mother's half brother. Her mother's half brother, yeah. Um, her mother in this film. Yeah, exactly. It, it was just unnecessary. Okay. 
Well, we've taken a lot of time on this one. We Let's have. move forward. Let's move on. <clears throat> <laughs> but I'm glad we didn't leave it to the end because I wouldn't want to finish on that. Uh, uh, one of the only differences that I uh, we um, noted in the uh, book between like what Abra does and doesn't do, instead of the Valkyrie armor that she wears in her dreamscape later on, she has this sort of like blue hair wig. And I didn't realize until I saw it the second time, there's an action figure on her bedside table that she's basically copying. Mm. Uh, it looks very much like an I Am Elemental figure. Probably someone will say, well, that's someone from RWBY, or she has a poster of that on her wall. Uh, I, I don't know what it is, but the point is that she's going to her comic inspirations mm, uh, rather than just historical ones. Yeah, she's creating from pop culture mm. her... Um, her avatars of, of psychic defense. And you had a theory on the blue hair? I had a theory on the blue hair. It but may you, not have any weight to it. You spotting so. the action figure would suggest that that's more likely than the theory that I came up with. Um, but it was to do with the... Uh, the, uh, the Gamergator boys being particularly resentful of girls who dye their hair blue. Multicolour generally. Are we including Ramona Flowers in this case? Quite possibly, I don't know. Um, But they they seemed to be really, really down on women who had weird coloured hair and blue was the thing that they kept coming back to. Um, But the rationale behind it was that if a woman dyes her hair an unnatural colour... It is a way of signifying to the world, I literally don't give a shit about what you guys think of me. This is this is not something that's done for sexual appeal. Therefore, your opinion of how attractive I am is utterly irrelevant. And the thing that it scares... It also means she's got a cool job who'll let her do that. Well, there is that as well, yeah. <laughs> um, but the thing that scares those boys more than anything else is the idea that they are irrelevant. And that comes into play later on with the walking right through you bit. We'll get to yes, that in a second. Indeed. Speaking of... Wow, hi there. Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the Hat. Rose scared the shit out of me throughout the book. And I was just thinking, I can totally see Rebecca Ferguson doing this. And when we got to the film, she was so much worse. <laughs> so much more terrifying. So much more charismatic and scene swallowing she had a combination of pennywise obviously immediately when she's just like like that that first scene where she meets little violet she's like ah do you want a flower would you like your boat back and she's sort of luring her in with magic and uh, and mirroring mm. what pennywise does to poor georgie and a bunch of kids hi georgie <clears throat> what a nice boat but she's also like Heath Ledger's Joker. No, 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 no. I killed a bus driver. Insofar as you ever like Joker, despite the sort of nervous lip uh, licking, is really comfortable in most scenes. Mm. Like even though he's got that hunchback, he just kind of owns the room and speaks in an offhand way, and doesn't have that thing that villains have, which is that <clears throat> extreme severity. And that they they must like they they must have this thing done. Sometimes Rose does get there, and that's when her character changes. Mm. Um, but it's entirely consistent with someone who goes through life in a kind of like let's just see where this next adventure takes us attitude. The way she sits on the bed with her new kidnap victim, cross-legged with a uh, new cup of tea and talks to her brightly with interest as opposed to threatening in any way or trying to overtly manipulate her. She's used to getting what she wants by drawing you in with pleasantry. 
she makes you want to be her friend. Rebecca Ferguson's delivery, I think it's the, like, I don't know whether it was her decision to play her as, as, as kind of Irish. She's very Irish at the beginning. Mm. Um, in, in the book, she is from Ireland originally. Okay. They are all very, very old, and I think yeah. she hails from like the 18th or, se- or 19th century, but she is from Ireland originally. Which reminded me of Celtic witchcraft, which reminded me of Bodicea. That reminded me of the way that Tilda Swinton plays Jardis in uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Whereas Barbara Kellerman in the BBC TV show was like, My child... Come sit by me and I shall wrap a mantle around you in a way that any canny child would be like, fuck no. Tilda Swinton played, oh, you poor thing. Come up and sit by me. Just get warm under this. Hmm, gonna miss you. And she has this really natural, unassuming, slightly airy way of talking whereby she's, you want to get her attention, you want to get her interest. And when you've got her interest, you kind of sit there enjoying it as opposed to someone who comes in and, like, way over-exit in a kind of, I want something from you. There's, there's also, underpinning that, when you talk about the, the standard villain being this sort of very severe, over-authoritative... Um, Killjoy. Yeah, that the, there will be a big, strong daddy who will come and clamp down on whatever it is that you want to do and potentially physically beat you for it as well. Yeah, Captain Baltus in The Princess Thieves was was this version yeah. of that character. Just someone who, when they found a problem, they would hammer down on yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that comes down to, um, and I've always said this in relation to horror films, but frankly it relates to anything where there is a, a, a villainous type character. Look at what the writer and or the director are scared of. And I think when you're uh, presenting a fearful opponent in the shape of a big authoritative daddy that acts in a very openly aggressive way. That's one type of of villain, but it's actually not the type of villain that necessarily needs to be guarded against. And it kind of ties in with the whole uh, the stranger danger thing to be scared of men in vans who would pull over and say in deep, aggressive voices, do you want some sweets or do you want to come and look at my puppies? And that was the thing that kids in the 80s, we certainly got this Mm. constantly. That was the thing that we were taught to guard against. But the, the backup to that was, if that happens, go and find either a policeman or a lady. Yeah. And that, and this whole thing about, um, you know, that that a women won't do this, and b anybody who is kind to you and uh, and what's the word I'm looking for um, tries to to connect with you in a gentle way is not going to do this to you. They're not going to hurt you, and that's somebody that you can trust. But when you look at at who in people who've been abused, who in their life is most likely to be in a position to abuse them. It's not strangers who turn up in vans. It's people they know. It's people they have connections with. It's people who are kind and understanding and manipulative and use their desire for connection against them. And I think that's one of the things that makes her so terrifying. It's one of the things that makes Pennywise so terrifying, even though he does kind of resort to the big teeth thing by the end. Um, But that... That understanding that by reaching out to a child 
on a very trusting level potentially puts that child at far greater risk than somebody who comes in obviously threatening, obviously big and scary. And and while, yes, that can cause a lot of damage when it comes through in jackboots, it's, it's the fact that you can't see the threat that makes it so much more potentially harmful. Well, you're talking about the uh, man in the van saying, get in the van, uh, being the primary stranger danger because we couldn't conceive that a woman would do that. Um, that actually happens in the film, and they abduct a small child using Andy, a blonde, small, girlish woman who opens the uh, side door and says, no, no, get in, trust me. And although obviously she's using a shining power to manipulate him, that's Myra Hindley. That's the woman that shocked England by being the accomplice to this horrendous man. The, the idea being, well, we would expect this from men to be this horrendous, but this coming from a woman shook us to our core. Mm. This is before our time, Sharon and I, but... Uh, yeah. Uh, no, I was. I saw a lot of the aftermath of it because okay. when I was little, of course, they were you still, you lived near the moors, uh, not too far away from there. But um, the specifically when I was little, they were still looking for some of the bodies. Right. Anyway, we won't dwell on Myra Hindley. I suppose she's the equivalent in America to uh, um, Lynette Squeaky from Matriarch. I suppose of the Manson murders. Mm. Okay, so Rose the Hat is the leader of the True Knot, a a vampire sect who travel America, only America apparently, in camper vans, minivans, uh, Winnebago's, light utility vehicles. Yeah, There's, there is a specific reason that they only travel within America. They won't fly. Oh yeah, they get air sickness. They get very, very powerful air sickness, but also uh, flying involves way too much identity checks and security yeah. and their their whole... The whole way that they pass with what they do is to be uh, very unassuming. unassuming and to fit in with mm. what's going on around them and not to stand out. And that relies on not being examined too closely. There are a bunch of youngish to middle aged looking people just sort of hanging around in their campgrounds being lords of leisure. And... I like the fact that in the film, we never really get the camera close to the faces. We never study these mm. people. They're always just like in the background, slightly out of focus, kind of like uh, Billy's followers in Bad Times at the El Royale. You yeah. never really get to know most of them. Yeah. Uh, and that's really what it comes down to with a cult. You surrender your identity to just the needs of the cult. Yeah, they act en masse. There are a few moments where you see them at, at, in repose, uh, where they're just sitting and reading individually mm. or something like that. But when they act, they tend to act as one. The only ones that talk at all talk to Rose. Yes. And it's a way of examining the group through the... Like, we get a lot of Rose. Mm. And it's a way of examining the uh, the dynamics of the group through Rose as a window. It's like yeah. Andy will occasionally talk to her. Crow Daddy will occasionally talk to her. Yeah. That's it. Well, she's the queen bee. She yeah. is effectively, if you think of them as being a hive, she's the one who's making the decisions and directing where they mm. go. There are a couple of occasions, uh, particularly when they take Bradley, where they do interact with somebody else. But if you look at the way... Barry talks to him first and then Andy picks up on that and follows on. It's almost as if they are the same mouth on a single entity. They are Pennywise. 
effectively. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of parallels with Pennywise. Pennywise, like these guys, is a vampire. He dwells in one place. They're the travelling version. Mm. Yeah. And uh, they uh, they may as well suck the blood out of you. They, they, they suck the shining out of you and your, sh- your shine, your essence. <clears throat> Which means that they have to specifically prey on special individuals. They can't just get a regular human. There'd be almost no steam Absolutely. in them. Yeah, and Technically, we don't know that that's not what Pennywise was doing. He may have been picking off children who had a little bit of shine. I would imagine he was. Mm. Which is why he finds the, uh, uh, the Losers Club Particularly so appealing. Appealing and intimidating at the same time. Yeah. Although he may not really know why. The fact that he is alone and in a single location, Mm. maybe he genuinely doesn't know why it is he feels those things. So they're very, very long-lived. The oldest of them is several thousands of years old, uh, Grandpa Flick. Mm -hmm. And the way Rose states it, eat well, live long. Meaning, like they're Skeksis, suck the essence out of uh, these special individuals and then you can live longer. It is once again, we keep coming back to this in all of our favourite media, the worst villains are the ones who just are shit scared that they will cease to exist at some day. The true not when they see death in their own are beside themselves with fear. Yeah. Death horrifies them. And much like Pennywise, they have to evoke fear in their victims. They have to evoke pain in their victims because it purifies the steam that comes out of them, out of their mouths and uh, strengthens it. And this means that we end up getting one of the most horrific scenes in any movie I have ever seen. It was one of the most upsetting parts of any book I've ever heard. I'm not going to make any qualitative comparisons with The Shining, but I've already said that film didn't scare me. This horrified me. I was squirming in my seat, crying and clutching at Sharon every moment of this. They abduct an 11-year-old child, and I hadn't really gotten a clear picture in my head when it was being read in the book and didn't realise exactly what was going to happen. So seeing it happen on screen was just so much worse. There was such a feeling of trepidation. I went into the film dreading this moment. Now it's a boy named Bradley who's just very, very, very good at baseball, played by an extremely talented young actor named Jacob Tremblay, who was in the Brie Larson film Room, a firecracker performance in Wonder, and in 2016 he was in Mike Flanagan's Before I Wake, which is that fantastic Netflix film. So much of that film rests upon his tiny shoulders, and he's amazing in it. And I will... Spare you listeners a vivid description of what happens, but... uh, If you've seen it, you know. If you've seen it, you know. They hold him down, torture him and kill him, and the steam that comes out nourishes them, and they are gripped in orgasmic joy at how much sustenance they're getting from him, and they swarm over him. There's several scenes in this of an overhead shot as the True Knot dash in all as one, which is most definitely the theatre troupe from uh, Interview with a Vampire. Mm. That is a very clear, these vampires are like rats moment. Just rushing in all at once. As soon as the, 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 it's like uh, someone says, go, and and it just Specifically that they've been given permission by their leader to eat. Yeah. It's like dogs going in on on a piece of meat. And again, I don't want to explore Bradley's horrible end, but it, I mean, 
I struggle to think of something worse in a film that I can th- uh, that I can conceive of. Which I mean, that's saying something. This is not doing fantastically at the box office as we record this, and some people have reported that it isn't scary. And obviously, fear is relative. We bring our own personal responses. I equate the fear I was gripped with with a mature, protective empathy that I associate with being an adult. When you're a kid, the fear is, what if this terrible thing happens to me? When you're an adult, if you can advance that, it becomes terrible things might happen to other people, and what if I can't prevent that? I I mean, I do think there are probably quite a few people who will watch it and go, well, it's not that bad. You don't really see that much. That's not the point. It's how it's Hmm. sold. Ultimately, if you are imbued with an overabundance of empathy, it's agonising. Yeah. Now, in the book, they make a big deal of the fact... (laughs) Several times that Rose, when she reveals her true form, has one enormous fang. Like a giant snake-like tooth at the front of her mouth. And this is a very visual representation of a vampiric, demonic, and very ancient Mm -hmm. force of of just... That will latch onto you. So it's... It it also um, suggests a distortion to the human shape that we have seen multiple times in Pennywise. I I personally like the way the true knot are presented in the sense that they are they were clearly once human. Mm. They are very much put across as uh, these were people with the shining, just the same as anybody else with the shining. It's just that the the process of joining this group Uh, and taking on the beliefs that this cult have about who they are. They refer to themselves as the chosen ones, the fortunate ones. It's all about we, 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 we. It's a very narcissistic way of looking at their powers and their abilities as opposed to seeing it as a thing that connects them all together, which is the way Abra sees it, that it makes them all brothers and sisters in a way. They're like, well, yes, we're brothers and sisters in our little knot, but anybody outside of that is food. Words like Nazi and white supremacist are labels that we can place on this, but the actual mentality goes back so much further to ultimately to any group of people that consider themselves to be above the rest of people who uh, the uh, true not call us rubes it's kind of yeah. like muggles yeah no it goes and we, that makes joe rowling's world kind of terrifying a little bit questionable um, but it's it goes beyond because they have their tribalism. own like uh, uh, hierarchy in this is why by the way we need new uh, Harry Potter films that go beyond the Harry Potter series that say, right, okay, the wizarding world kind of got a lot of problems, we've got to deal with these, as opposed to going back to when it was even worse. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, this this kind of attitude goes way beyond simple tribalism, which is, you know, we are both having to occupy this area of land and the way that we feel about distributing resources is that we got to fight over them. It's It's an elevation of we are greater than the others because of something. We're stronger, we're whiter, we're richer. There is an element to us that makes us special and unique and specifically, because obviously the the special and unique thing is not in and of itself 
problematic. It's when that becomes being special and unique entitles us to take whatever we want from whoever we want. They are resources, nothing more. They are not people. There's an interesting parallel with another Kubrick film, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the apes at the beginning with the bones. Mm. As soon as they're like, right, we've got these bones, we can now defend ourselves and actually get territory. Those apes were fine, but the apes that decided we're going to take these bones and we're going to go and take what we want from this other tribe and fuck them. That (laughs) suddenly becomes the first instance of this. Mm. Yeah. There is a tipping point between we need to go and take from them in order to live and we don't have to take from them anymore, but we're going to anyway. You could say that we're taking from chickens to stay alive Mm. in what we eat. There is a frightening parallel with how much we as a race take from the rest of the world in the name of our own survival. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's something, this is where the kind of the natural empathy limiting of human beings comes from. Because ultimately, you got to live. There are things you're going to have to do in the world to live. But this... Uh, this elevation of a specific small group, I think the point at which it tips over and starts to become an issue is when there is nobody who can challenge them. Because there's, like I say, there's a difference between we will take from you because that's what we need to survive and then someone else will come and take from us because that's what they need to survive Mm. or you come and take back from us what we took from you. It's when you consider yourself the top of the pyramid. Yeah, and when there isn't really anybody who can undermine that. Mm. Like I said, entitlement. Yeah. Without challenge. Also, very specifically, the true knot are not working in harmony with nature. They are trying to cheat death. Eon after eon. Yeah. They do not have an acceptance of their place in the world. There's a point where they discuss the theory that there is less shining what they refer to as steam in the world. And it's entirely possible that the reason that there is less is because those fuckers have eaten it all. Yeah, it's all contained in them. That when somebody who has the shining passes away, and eventually their ghost also passes away, that that shining is then meant to redistribute itself into the world. And they are preventing it from doing so by... So they're kind of a... They're 1% of people hoarding Mm. 99% of the shining wealth. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Many parallels there are. Mm, Indeed. So, I mean, yeah, but that's the thing. You can apply all kinds of parallels to the true knot. Any kind of group that are not only happy hurting people, but actually seem to enjoy it more hurting Mm. people. The cruelty is the point. Yeah. There's no real wavering before they're incredibly cruel to Bradley. There's no, oh, God, I hate this bit. Oh, God, I'm so, 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 so sorry. Is there somewhere we can do it any differently? They relish it. They consider them, They consider humans to be lesser. And something that was introduced for the film, I think, which I thought was really powerful, when... Uh, Grandpa Flick dies, and in the in the book, it's the result of them having yeah they ingested get in- measles from Bradley, which is like there is a, dude karma. There is a whole weird, complicated thing that's like right. We used to eat people with shinings, and they had measles, and we had developed an immunity to measles from just eating people with measles. 
But then because of all the vaccinations, all of these diseases went away and we started eating people without these diseases. Now with anti-vaxxers out there, we're eating kids who haven't been vaccinated and we're now suddenly susceptible to all these diseases. It's a really higgledy-piggledy idea on Stephen King's front. Mm. And, And honestly, he doesn't really allude to the whole anti-vax movement it's there it's it's there it's there specifically the fact that it's measles i mean he could have picked any disease but specifically the fact that it's measles um but so like oh i'm getting measles Ah, and And because they have no resistance to it they have no immunity to it um by the way when they die in the book it's satisfying in the film it's even more satisfying there's this it's frightening how they die and everyone around them like for them it's absolutely horrific for me it was kind of like watching downfall mm. it's like all of these nazis get in their comeuppance and it's like i know that satisfaction here is unseemly and i should not be sadistic i will try not to enjoy this too, too much, much. <laughs> But they, they've got this go, ah, 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 as they like become incorporeal and just melt away into nothing. And it's actually, there's no real gore, but it's no. fucking terrifying. But they, it's described in the book, they call it cycling. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that they, they start to fade. Their, their flesh literally starts to disappear, but it goes in layers. So, like, their skin disappears, so all you can see is muscle and tissue, and mm. the muscles disappear, and then they'll, they'll kind of... Bits of them will come back, and then they'll start feeling pain again because their nerves are re-corporeal where they weren't yeah. before. And then they'll cycle, and all you'll be able to see is bones and eyeballs, and then they'll come back again, and then they disappear. It's the most horrendous way to die. Yeah. Good. Indeed. <laughs> and it terrifies them the the death of grandpa flick really gets across how scared they are of this concept that they will no longer exist and then they puff out and all that's left of them is clothes they just disappear there's nothing to bury what i so mean is like in no war body. of the worlds the spielberg one when, <clears throat> when the uh, martians zap them with the death ray they kind of turn to dust and their clothes fall to the ground yeah. that's horrifying um but the uh, the, the way it's presented in the film which as i said i don't recall being in the book is that when they actually finally cycle out the, the last time they kind of explode in a puff of steam mm. and there's a moment when everybody's been kind of holding back from Grandpa Flick because they're terrified. They, they're seeing him die. It's they're in an existential them they dread. Could die. Yeah. Absolutely, they're terrified. Um, Rose is the only one who'll go near him, and she can barely look at him. Mm. She's trying to to kind of talk to him about you know back in the day when he was an emperor and people listened. To, he was a king. They and cowered to in him. their huts and skyscrapers. Exactly, and she's she's evoking people were scared of you. Remember when you were strong and, and powerful. You eat fish. And she's totally disconnecting him from the experience of going into nothingness. There's ways she could handle this. It's because she's not actually talking to him. She's talking to herself. Exactly. She's saying, don't be scared, Rose. Don't be scared, Rose. Cling to the power. But then when he finally goes and there's this cloud of steam... All of these people surrounding him who were terrified and holding back... Oh, my God, they pounce on him like carrion. And just eat his remains. Yes. Uh, it's, again, it, uh, they could have played it both ways. They could have played it the other way, wherein they just watch the steam escape and they're too afraid and disturbed mm. to try to, to, to eat it, yeah. which would have been also powerful. But this way, it's the Skeksis. They will just eat each other. Absolutely. And honestly, personally, I find that incredibly reassuring mm. because when these people go down, that's exactly what's going to happen. They are going to fucking eat each other. I suggested on Twitter the other day, giant human centipede for the 1%. 
If they're going to eat each other, they might as well start with the ass. Ew. <laughs> back to that enormous fang in the book they didn't need to put it on Rebecca Ferguson she was scary enough without it mm, absolutely um, and the imagery by the way of them having glowing silver eyes and roaring is so haunting they didn't need to add teeth to that yeah tits on a ball yeah it, it's a way of making them uh gilding the lily animalistic unnaturally animalistic so I suppose that that's demonic all by itself mm. um but there's also um there's a parallel between the death of Grandpa Flick and the deaths that Danny helps with. Yeah. In the sense that we, we see him holding the hand of and talking to an old man who's dying in the hospice he works in and going through his memories in a similar way remember back when this happened remember when you experienced this but it's instead of it being about remember when you were powerful and nobody could stand against you remember when everybody cowered from you in fear cling to that don't don't recognize the fact that you're going into that good night um whereas what danny brings to charlie is it's okay it's it's okay yeah just there was there was love in your life and you can take those memories with you. And he helps him get past the pain and past the fear rather than just reinforcing them. And there is there is no connection between Rose and Grandpa. He's terrified. He can't see her. All he can see is the void. And it really underpins the difference between these approaches. Danny achieves this by reaching into their minds and bringing them back to the past where they were safe, where they were comforted, where the world made sense and they moved to its rhythms. It's as touching and quiet as the uh, death scene for Grandpa Flick is cacophonic and terrifying. A couple of other uh, members of the true not worth talking about. Emily Allen Lind as Snakebite Andy. Uh, she's a girl they meet originally in the book. In 1982, she's watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. And in, in the film, they probably couldn't get the license to Raiders. Oh, yeah, Steve. You'll take The Shining, but you won't give them Raiders. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Steve. We, lo- we love you. We're totally doing a whole series on you. But still, it would have been a nice... Exchange actually. Yeah. I'm going to take the Shining. Uh, that's George. <laughs> I'm going to take the Shining, and uh, you guys uh, have have whatever Amblin film you want. Mm. Duel did not expect that. <laughs> so yeah, she's this tortured, abused girl when we first meet her, and uh, they they do a pretty good hard candy job of in just a few seconds getting you like okay I'm on I, I get this character she's uh, agreed to meet a man on the internet so obviously it couldn't be 1982 and uh, he he was looking for a little girl that he could 
Yeah. And she has the ability to effectively just take over your uh, brain and make you do whatever she says. The word from mm. Jesse Custer. A little bit, yeah. And uh, she robs him and carves a snake bite in his cheek and uh, leaves a hypnotic suggestion that will leave him in shame for the rest of his life as uh, in, in this weird kind of, well, I can't say this is too harsh a punishment. I think... I would say it's too harsh a punishment, and I would say the reason being, and you get more of this in the book, not so much in the film, but the the point that's outlined is that she's not just punishing him. Yeah, no, she's, she's punishing, punishing every, every man who's Very specifically ever her father. Her, her and her father as well, yeah. The way that the slight sympathy kind of helps and does underpin her character in quite an important way is not just to do with who she is it's to do with who the true knot is because the way that cults draw you in is they pick up on your vulnerabilities and they offer you the answers exactly so they go for people who've been abused they go for people who are in pain they go for people who are lost they say drink from me and live forever precisely because like I said before, with the the idea that the shining as a survival trait wouldn't mm. need to come through if you were well supported and and well resourced. If you are well supported and well resourced, you don't need cults either. Yeah, uh, she's fifteen in the film. Uh, there, there's a difference in approach to her as a, a person in the book. She actually uh, has sex for the first time with Rose. Um, Shortly before or after induction, I think it's before. But uh, the point is that Andy is very particularly filled with fear and revulsion of men. So finally, being able to be a w- with a woman is a huge deal to her. Mm. But Rose says it can only be this one time and yeah. limits it like that in this kind of uh, power play mm. way. Which she I, uses it as a seduction. Technique. I was just about to say I, I got the impression that she does that with with many members of the mm. cult that they draw in, whether male or female. And obviously, her being fifteen, that makes it very fucking dodgy, like uh, Claudia Ground. Yeah, I think she's older in the book. Okay. The way it's then pitched in the film, she's older in, in uh, years and experience, but not in, in age when we finally get to her in the uh, uh, later part of the film. Um, now, the problem with Andy in the book is that she's not really... Like, they set her up as this character who can push, and it's really just King going, and this is how you are inducted in the true knot. And then she kind of features a couple of times and then gets killed. And then that uh, death serves as a revenge thread for a character named Silent Sari who doesn't speak much and appears to be... um, Of low IQ. Of low IQ is a good way of putting it. Um, And uh, but So Sari wants to kill Dan for that, but then Sari ends up coming a cropper as well. So it's like this whole Andy thread eventually goes nowhere and got tied off, and it's almost like King didn't really know what he was going to do. In the film, Snakebite Andy does serve a very dire purpose, which is to take away things that we care about and things that are very important to Dan and increasingly Abra. Um, There is a very good reason for her to be there, and it's a horrible end, but she makes it that they can't get through this without terrible sacrifice. And that sets the tone for the uh, for the rest of the third act of the film. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think as well, it brings back some, at that point, much needed threat mm. for the true knot to have. Which 
king loses because yeah. the true knot become incompetent boobs where you're like how are these guys running rings around you so much yeah. they become it was re- weird it was like okay hang on you were dangerous now you're less dangerous you're still dangerous you're wounded animals it could go either way here mm-hmm. as opposed to Abra is absolutely desperate and probably won't survive this and neither will Dan and neither will any of them because these guys are unbeatable mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's an unusual way of treating villains and it's a novel way but it does also lower the tensions of the book it does and I do wonder a little bit if it's and this is entirely speculation on my part some of the uh, the older stories that King wrote a lot of the threat and a lot of the danger relies very very heavily on things going on that people don't know about yeah. uh, that they don't understand that there are you know, there's stuff beyond the ken of mortal man happening in the background. Very pet cemetery. The Wendigo that no one exactly, talks to. Exactly. That everybody is supposed to be very, very terrified of. The problem with the modern age is that you can't really do that because the ken of mortal man is so much broader now than it was in 1982. Yeah. Uh, Arbor finds out about these people and just jumps straight on Google. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and uh, in a way, I suppose, presenting them as, as a, a group that we know more about, we know more about the history, we know more about their background, what motivates them, things like that. It makes them much more engaging. It makes makes them much more interesting than a scary ghost with its face half hanging off that just turns up and terrifies people, but you never get any explanation about what, what it is. Um, but it also inevitably will make them feel less threatening. Also, her last uh, line before the very last line is when she's got Dan down on the floor and she's holding a, a, a rifle to his face. Fucking men. It, it just it maintains her character mm. in a stronger way than the book. Yeah. And that the the, uh, the a- actress, Emily Allen Lind, plays her with a vulnerability and these big wide eyes the whole way through, like she's trying to work out what's going on. And um, she threw her lot in with the wrong people. Feasibly, she, if she'd met Charles Xavier instead... Maybe so. She, and it's... There by the grace of God goes Elsa. Absolutely. And, and that's... It's a very tight line to walk because... It's very easy to frame someone who feels that way and acts that way in response as, oh, you know, hyper-aggressive feminists just totally throwing everything out and refusing to accept that any man could ever be worth anything. But fundamentally, the way that she gets it across is you recognise that ultimately she is battling something we can't see. Mm. And there is just enough empathy to understand that while not removing, yeah, but she's still a threat. Yeah. And also, you see her take great pleasure in hurting um, children. Yeah. Uh, specifically Bradley in this and and has no, no compunction with that. So your sympathy is very much limited to, yeah, but you're still an unrepentant, sadistic child murderer. Exactly. So. And that's that's the thing, isn't it? That's we've We've talked about this before, that that's the line between... You know, you can you can have sympathy and empathy for somebody who is the way they are or behaves the way they do, should I say, because of terrible things they've experienced and abuse that has happened to them. But there comes a point where you have a choice to either perpetuate that cycle and visit that abuse on people who are weaker than you because that's the only way that you can make yourself feel better or to turn it around and either deal with it in a much healthier way, or at least, if you can't do that, turn it back on the 
the source of the of the fear and abuse that you've experienced rather than pushing it out onto people who don't deserve it and are in fact representations of yourself. One other major member of the uh, True Knot is uh, Zach McLaren as Crow Daddy, who again is quite slight in the book, and he plays it understated in the film. There were times I was like, "Is that Snoop Dogg or Lou Diamond Phillips?" But in ne- like he never overplays anything, so it's always just this sort of like quiet, thoughtful. And then there's a bit when he manages to finally kidnap Abra after a, a plan that they have to. Like the true not see Abra thanks to uh, Rose uh, going back and forth with her uh, and they, they want to kidnap her and suck her dry so that they can survive because the death of um, Grandpa Flick has, has horrified them and Crow Daddy actually succeeds even though Abra's trick does manage to result in killing most of the true not apart from Rose uh, Dan and uh, his friend Billy get the jump on them and shoot them all with hunting rifles and they die in that spectacular fashion the last one being Andy who tells Billy to kill himself and you gasped at that point because Billy survives in the novel and he's a, he's a lovely supportive character the whole way through and Cliff Curtis played him again very understated, very human and that, that was the film going right, if you've read the book this is going to go in a different way anything could happen which is a great way for the film to blindside you but there are uncomfortable parallels with with Dick Halloran in the original because this was something that it didn't throw me out of the film Um, it Billy Cliff Curtis's character suddenly shooting himself because Andy has told him to horrified me Um, and then when Uh, Crow Daddy takes Abra, we come back into her house and her father is dead on the floor with a knife in his chest. He also survived to the end. Who also, yeah, exactly. There's all of these men crowded around in the kitchen at one point in the book and in the film, all invested in one thing, protecting Abra. And it's this wonderful kind of, this is what older men need to be doing, just Mm. making sure that these kids get a chance. Yeah. Not shouting them down and telling them to go back to school when they have something to say and something to do. But the the bit that I had a little bit of difficulty with was the fact that in in the original Shining book, Dick Halloran does not die, and in the film, he is the only body count. And, you know, it's it's it unless has you count not Jack. Yeah, unless you count Jack. But um it has not escaped the attention of of several people who've reviewed it that Ultimately, they set up this this sympathetic, likable black character, and then kill him very unceremoniously. He's in The Shining or in, in uh, Doctor Shining. Sleep. In, right, yeah, yeah, in The Shining. Um, without you know, there's there's no warning. He doesn't achieve what he's gone there to achieve. Technically, he does. He was there to save them, and he gave them a. He brings a them snow the snowcat. Cat. <laughs> but he could have just brought them the snowcat and beat the horn. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There are reasons that that made such a huge impact on a lot of people. The fact that we liked him so much and that just having him taken away makes Jack a completely irredeemable villain, which is what Kubrick wanted. Yes. He didn't want there to be any sense of Mm. not sure about Jack. He was a son of a bitch. Yes, that's true. But ultimately, he put that character on the altar 
in order to achieve that. Yeah. Throughout horror history, people of colour have been victims more than heroes, yeah. which is why... Indeed. Uh, and redressing that balance with more heroes of colour who actually live is key as we move forwards. Because of that in The Shining, that being in my mind, it felt uncomfortable that there is a two-person body count in this sequence... And it's two characters... Are we not counting any of the true not? The, yeah. No, no, no. They're the bad guys. That's fine. So you don't see them as people? Continue. <laughs> they don't see themselves as people. Yeah, they have these two characters that they have specifically made for the film, characters of colour. You've got Cliff Curtis cast as Billy. Yeah, they never said Billy was and, in any um, particular... Yeah, message. and Abra's father is black, and they are the ones who get killed. And it it's... I agree that, yes, it, it raises the stakes and it gives some impact. And like I said, the, the fact that it brings threat back to the true knot is absolutely key. But it just felt like, did you see what you were doing hmm. a little bit? I think it can be two things at once because it hmm. makes oh, the absolutely. film really weigh a lot more than if it had mm. just been a romp and we got through and oh well wasn't that great it was a, it was a grueling escapade but an escapade nonetheless yes but also as well do bear in mind that at this point in the film where those two deaths had occurred i was anticipating the book's ending rather than the actual ending that we yeah. get with the film and that does shift the balance <laughs> to a degree uh, but uh, yeah, Zach McLaren, when he has uh, Abra in the ba uh, back of his van and is uh, talking to her in a very quiet, mannered, reasoned way, talks about your people didn't have to do this. They didn't have to uh, 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 fight us. They could just have given, uh, just walked away. And now your people are dead and my people are dead. And what's the point? Mm -hmm. The same thing was always going to happen. And as far as he's concerned, he doesn't get that taking the true knot out of the world mm. is an achievement. Mm. As far as he's concerned, good people on both sides. Yeah. No, you people need to be gone. Mm. And this was worth it. It's a terrible sacrifice, but mm. to, it is made painfully clear that if they remain, that they have committed the most sadistic, horrific of crimes, and they are leeching out of the world its brightness. Absolutely. They need to be gone. Yeah. It is not a same result. It is a positive result that has some consequences and has some payment to be made. Absolutely. And also, it's not just a case of that they've committed horrendous crimes in the past that they now may or may not be sorry for. They're this is carry something this they on. will continue to do With and they will not stop. Yeah. And uh, as well as the this small group will continue to do it, they will continue to spread. Maybe not widely. It's, it's kind of emphasised that once upon a time there were many more of them and Rose over the, the years does they say, have reduced. I am by no means the last. I'm just the prettiest. Yes, indeed. Um, and they, they have the conversion of Andy in order to illustrate how it is that they are able to spread. And they even have a conversation uh, between Crow and Rose about what are they going to do with Abra when they've captured her? Are they just going to kill her and take her steam straight off the bat? Are they going to hang on to her and try and get as much steam as they can out of her before she finally dies? Or, he suggests, are they going to turn her? Now, this is one of the most fascinating conversations for, for Rose's character to me. Because the 
She's like, no, turn her. And yeah. she, like, like, she's like, uh, are you fucking stupid? Exactly. And there is a way of taking that as they are desperate by this point. They are starving. The amount of steam that they've actually been able to uh, gather over the years has been diminishing and diminishing. They do store it. They have flasks that they keep, mm. uh, canisters in the van that, that they can contain it in, but they are running out. And there's this air of desperation about them that, that if they don't find somebody big soon, they're going to starve to death. And Abra is that somebody big. However, there is another reason why Rose cannot countenance the idea of turning her, and that is that she will not risk having somebody else with more power than her in the group. And that, to me, is the ultimate cult leader hallmark. I can't have anyone near me who even stands a chance of coming close to challenging me for this position. It's like if the Manson family said to Charlie, do you want to get this David Koresh in? Yeah, fuck no. no. (laughs) But yeah, Manson is exactly who I was thinking of. You look at who these people, when you you look at the... By the way, um, this is how you do that bit in, uh, that whole theme in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, in a way that appeals to us. Mm, Indeed, that's true, actually. Um, But that, that sort of... The uh, evangelical um, sect leader, the the charismatic religious person who uh, gathers a, what do they call them, following herd group thing around them... Look at the people that they pick. They're weak. They're, or at least they perceive them as weak. There are resources to them as much as they see the rest of the world as resources to the group. That that I've got my position and I'm incredibly scared of being toppled from it. It's a parallel for that I'm incredibly scared of dying and not existing anymore. Mm. It's just another manifestation of the same fear. And they get that across from Rose in a way that doesn't diminish her threat and doesn't diminish her power. In a way, it even makes her more dangerous because, like I said to you, she's a wounded animal. That potentially makes her more unpredictable and therefore more dangerous. Before they close in on Abra, one of my favourite sequences in the book and the film, Rose goes looking for her. She's made aware of her because Abra sees them kill Bradley. She feels a great disturbance in the force. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, right, we've got to look her out there. I'm going to find her. And so she's flying like Jeff Bridges and the Big Lebowski (laughs) over the houses. This haunting scene as she's flying through the sky. And there's some fantastic camera work in this film. It's not Kubrick, but it's some really memorable moments. Like when the world tips, you stay with the subject. So the world's tipping rather than the subject is tipping and there's a, a bit where like she flies downwards she's effectively standing in space hanging vertically and the clouds are in front of her at 90 degrees on the screen so effectively she's kind of hovering standing straight up gravity doesn't matter it's a really eerie way Dimensions of looking are irrelevant yeah, to forward to the clouds rather than down on them uh, there's also a bit where she uh, sucks up steam from this vacuum flask when they're turning Andy and then she leans down to breathe it into Andy's mouth and the camera follows her down as well so it just tilts onto one side it's really unnerving and Mike Flanagan has used this a couple of times in his previous movies which we've been watching more recently to the point where it's almost his signature 
they do quite a lot of interesting bindle work with shifting the environment. When Abra's trying to look out the window and then the, the whole room tilts so that the window is above her head. And later on when Dan is trying to see into where Abra is and he looks at the blackboard and then the room turns and he tumbles down towards the blackboard. It's just this really great Inception-style way of changing perceptions. Um, but it is this wonderful sequence where, like, over the past decade, there have been a lot of jump-scare ghost stories. So whenever we get a new flavor, I sit up and take interest. This is a reversal of that. You're with the spirit, walking in, like, flying through the window into the girl's room and dwelling there in the shadows, and it's like, hang on, we're seeing this from the, the malevolent Wraith's point of view. And the girl's all sort of bunched up in bed, and she's like, don't wake up. And then she turns to this giant filing cabinet that represents the mind palace of Abra and starts rifling through it to find out who she is. And then she stops and turns and looks back at the bed. Nothing. Then goes back to the rifling through while saying, Oh, you rubes, you think that these memories make you special. You should see my mind palace. It's a cathedral. And she's just radiating arrogance. And then a spotlight slams down on her. And Abra is sitting up on the bed. She's masked her face and given herself that blue hair we mentioned before. And the way she's shot is like a ghost in uh, an uh, aggressive ghost story where she's like like that and Rose's hand gets slammed into this metal filing cabinet and it is fucking bone chilling as she starts to like she's screaming her head off she can't move she's rooted to the spot and it is a complete reversal of every single ghost that hurts you story where you fuck the ghost Mm. and um, like she ends up having to rip the skin off her hand, like the flesh and multiple layers. I'm gonna go into detail on this one. You can see the fucking bones in her hand. It's disgusting and weirdly satisfying as she staggers back, screaming in agony. It happens kind of similarly in the book, but this is just like visually shocking and just a, a fantastic reversal of the standard. So Rose already hates Abra and is super pissed at her. So now when she feels the rest of the true not dying, she is out for blood. And then Crow Daddy gives this really, like, like I say, serious kind of Western style speech when they're in the van. He's like this sort of, you know, old Tommy Lee Jones type. Then Dan jumps into Abra's head and takes control of the vehicle. And again, the the actress playing Abra, this might be her best performance in the film, uh, Kylie Curran, because she's effectively acting as 40-something-year-old Ewan McGregor going, oh, fuck, I feel hungover. And she's very different to Abra Mm. here at this point. Did you notice the visual signifier, by the way? What? She has blue eyes. Nice. In that moment, she has blue eyes, and then when it cuts back and we know she's Abra again, her eyes are her own natural brown. There's a really nice... um, like uh, that, the way the scene is composed, she's blurry in the background, and we're sharply on Crow Daddy's face. So while she's talking, she's actually a source of fear for him. And again, like she becomes the ghost to these people because he knows she's not her. Yeah. He knows there's someone else there, and it's it's just a really great way of remanaging horror, so that the the mechanics of horror are turned and used by the protagonists. Mm, indeed, which is of I course... got infinite time for that kind of. Uh, um, upsetting of the balance yeah and and as we've discussed many many times when we've talked about horror films for me that is what horror and cautionary tales are for they are there for us to Mm. use for our purposes to overcome fear which is why i get very frustrated with horror stories that Mm. are just about the reinforcing of fear without actually giving you any guidance on how to address it 
However, it doesn't become a power fantasy, not entirely, because while in the book the true knot are even more bungling and there's far less consequence in the film, they're more dangerous as they get hurt and there are consequences. Mm, yeah. And actually thinking about it, although it is more extreme and more visually shocking and it unfortunately means that Billy is removed from the story, that is uh, thematically linked to the fact that when Crow Daddy takes Abra, he takes Billy as well yeah. and he threatens Billy to control her. Yeah. It's fear of Billy being hurt that ultimately makes her do as she's told, not fear of herself being hurt. And one final note on the rest of the true knot. Uh, the uh, guy that Abra mentions in the film is Barry the Chunk. In the book, he's called Barry the Chink. Mm. She, she does make mm. that mistake herself. And they even point out that he's white. And it's like just these old, stupid, bigoted people going, and we call him Barry the Chink because he's not Chinese. And it's like, this is like your parents at a party saying shit around your friends. Mm. And you're just like, oh, this is true. And they also, uh, in the film, the instead of it being Indi uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's Casablanca, which is neat because uh, Indiana Jones was part based on Rick in uh, Casablanca. Um, he even dresses like him in Temple of Doom. Mm. But... Uh, it ties in with the fact that the True Not listen to sort of old music, which they do at the Overlook. This kind of midnight, that kind of old stuff. It puts them out of step with the rest of the world. And I was m m whispering to you that it, it, it makes it, it kind of dates it. But then it's like, no, the True Not themselves are dated. Mm. They are outmoded. They shouldn't be here. Absolutely. They're malingering parasites. Mm -hmm. To tie back in with the measles side of things, by the way, for the finale... Um, the mother in the film does mention she's going to see Momo, which is her grandmother, yeah. who's dying of cancer. And that happens in the book, but Dan gets to meet with Momo. Is, mm. Do they drive to her, or is she at his hospice? No, no. Uh, oh, yeah, no, no, no. They brought her to his hospice, yeah. yeah. There's some. There's a couple of really great old ladies in the book which aren't don't get their chance to air on, on screen, and Momo was one of them. And she's you know, riddled with cancer. And what Danny does effectively with his Dr. Sleep um, method is to ever so slightly nudge the mind back towards a place of happiness and peace to instill them with calm and just to remind them of, of things that they loved, again, like to the moon. And um, as they die, this like little wisp of, in the book, it's red steam comes out of their mouth. It it's silver when, they're sh uh, when they have a shine. Mm. But I think, again, they simplified the language for the film so that you wouldn't be like, well, what, why is it red? Why is it yeah. uh, silver? It just, it's just everyone has a little bit of a shine, it would mm. appear. At least yeah. Danny can see it. Mm. But, uh, okay, either way, he takes Momo into himself, but that also includes the cancer she was suffering from. Like, this is neat, but at the same time, it does raise a lot of questions about how the true not managed to survive this long. It's yeah. kind of like the Vampire Chronicles, we can't drink dead blood mm. thing. The implication is that they have never accidentally picked up anybody who was sick in any way. It also, honestly, I, I understand that Stephen King clearly has some personal issues with cancer. It's a recurring theme in a lot of his books. Um, Bedridden it, women with their twisted it, spines. It demonises it in a way that is not necessary. Yeah. So in the end, uh, uh, Rose tries to suck Dan dry and she ends up absorbing Momo, which weakens her considerably. Mm. So that's just, it's the subterfuge that they eat there. They just remove that to not complicate things and just like keep it focused. And 
but after uh, Danny leads to the death of uh, Crow Daddy, who ends up, you know, being flung from the van and uh, on the ground, um, Rose appears in the road in the film. I don't remember if this happened in the book while Abra is walking away yeah. and just like it's like, oh my god, this is like two gunslingers going at each other, and Abra just keeps walking towards her, and Rose is just glowering and like shining eyes, and she's projecting herself, and then Abra walks straight the fuck through her, mm. not even like I'm going to accept your challenge, we're going to kill you, you bitch, or just nothing. She's just like, Fum, and Rose becomes ephemeral, turns into mist, and then like, fucking, and it's a, this is the greatest insults mm-hmm. to predators yeah. to. To just act as though... You are irrelevant. Yeah. It may not necessarily be the safest thing to do, mm-hmm. but it's the thing that hurts the most. Yeah. So, yeah, in the film, uh, her father, uh, Abra's father, Dave, does die, and uh, she's left with her mother at the end. But there's also a character named Frank, uh, who's an orderly who's abusive. To... Yeah, early on in the story, uh, he's somebody who Dan works with who's been... He's not, like, outright abusive, but he's overly physical with the patients when Mm. he doesn't need to be and he hurts them and obviously because they're old he bruises them Mm. he's not careful about them he doesn't seem to care about his job in any way so then the reversal of that is at the very end of the book dan's um the the cat goes in and sits on his bed and Mm. he's dying and well he's specifically he's been in a car accident and because the something else had happened at a and e and a and e was full um and this was the nearest close thing to a medical facility nearby so this is where they brought him so it's just a way of showing that dan continues with his doctor sleep uh, duties and he helps this um flawed man Mm -hmm. find some measure of peace and that's his job and it's a lovely end to the book uh and it's it's like okay so dan is just this peaceful arbiter of um relief Mm. and that's why he's doctor sleep um but that doesn't happen in this instead Abra, now free of uh, Crow Daddy, uh, meets uh, Dan, now mourning the death of Billy, at a motel where they immediately drive to the Overlook, which he has described as a place rather than a a people who, like the True Knot, but located geographically in a single area, much like Pennywise. Mm. Only it's it's, it's not the girl, Ray, it's the building. (laughs) Um, And... I don't think we really emphasised that the Overlook in the original Shining is the most important character, more so even than Jack. Mm, yeah. That, like, you know, here's Johnny thing. The Overlook itself, with its baleful holding and intensity and just that that horrendous carpet, which actually is the opening sequence of this film. You get, like, the carpet uh, um, hexagons. Yeah, the 70s is vomiting on you. Enjoy. Yep, that's pretty much what it is. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the the, uh, the Overlook has been waiting for the third act of this film. Now, in the book, the Overlook burned down in the original uh, Stephen King novel, and there's no Overlook anymore. They go back to the spot of the Overlook, the site, and it's called the highest peak or the I highest point. Or like, I can't remember. Lookout point, called. make out point or something but, like that. But it's e- basically a platform on the side of a mountain with a cabin or so next yeah, to it. It's not exactly visually resplendent. Yeah, the, there's all this stuff throughout the book about how the true not own land in various different it's locations. It's good to have land. And it so happens that the land on which the Overlook once stood has somehow come into their possession and they use it as a campground. I did not know that. 
And it makes no sense because the uh, the campground itself would have eaten them. Mm, yeah, I, I I think it's like the the count or the state owns it or something, but they've got rights to come and again, stay, much yeah. like the uh, secret half brother thing. That's just one connection too many. Yeah, perhaps. yeah, exactly. But it's I mean it's supposed to be about how the evil has seeped into the ground and they're drawn to it, and it's just a little bit too pet cemetery. Now, the music throughout the film uh, has often riffed on a single piece of music by Wendy Carlos, who did some bits for the original Shining. She actually did a whole score for it. And Stanley, much like 2001, went, mm, thanks, Wendy, but no. And, she, and took a few bits of it and kept them in the film. Uh, and she was fuming for that. He did that a lot. Yeah. She never really worked <laughs> with him again. She wasn't yeah. there for Full Metal Jackie. He actually got his daughter under an assumed name to do the score for that. Little nepotiz. Yeah. And then uh, there was a variety of people for um, Eyes Wide Shut. It seemed like most of his films, he didn't really want to have that score so much as uh, classical music keeping it from being dated. Although ironically, the way that Wendy Carlos's keyboard work in uh, Clockwork Orange went, yeah, doing Beethoven, it's incredibly dated. It's very much of its time. It's very much synthy kind of Beethoven. Uh, but uh, the, the Shining soundtrack was never released, well, was briefly released and then recalled because of various rights regarding the music. It was briefly available on vinyl, and you can track it down, but it is expensive. Uh, the main title for it was uh, Desiree, uh, which is a classic piece of like Gregorian uh, music that actually turns up in a lot of other places beyond The Shining. It's not like it's not The Shining music; it's just made very like audibly famous by The Shining. It was by uh, Tomasco de Celano, who uh, I believe was a monk, oh. like centuries and centuries ago. Thomas of Celano died on the 4th of October, 1265. And that was Wendy Carlos's version of it. And then uh, the Rocky Mountains uh, piece of music, when they're travelling up to the Overlook the second time, uh, that was Wendy Carlos. But the other, the third major piece of music she contributed was not on the soundtrack, is not available anywhere until she re-released her own archival work, Rediscovering Lost Scores, Volumes 1 and 2 which is uh, an exploration of abandoned or unused themes. And it's called uh, either Heartbeats in some versions or Heartbeats and Worry. And it's this. It's that boom, 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 boom. That kind of like driving, like it, it's, it's like the flapping of great wings. And at the same time, it's a heartbeat. It's, it's filled with dread. That pervades throughout Doctor Sleep. Uh, you know, the fact that you could never really get hold of that track before, it's like, well, we've got a whole soundtrack full of it now. That's an anxiety attack. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's that's the piece of music that plays when Jack encounters the woman in 237. Mm-hmm. And Wendy's nervous heartbeats have been reorchestrated by the Newton brothers, Andy Grush and Taylor Newton-Stewart, for Doctor Sleep. Uh, while that's played throughout this, and, and like, every time that... Uh, it kind of evokes the overlook or it evokes some sense of uh, Danny's anxiety that plays. But uh, while they play Desiree at the very beginning, just to go, it's The Shining, get used to it, and like, yeah, we, this is authentic, they save the best piece of music, the best version of that for the approach to the overlook. And I'd always admired the opening shots of The Shining. It's a striking beginning, 
and it's been imitated time and again. But I hadn't really felt wholly invested before. Travelling over landscape, and it's kind of like it goes in with the themes of the stolen land um, uh, of it and, and, and being watched. There is a whole sense of being watched when you're in the Overlook. But in the reapproach in Doctor Sleep, it's the same shots in the dark. Total darkness. You can just make out the black silhouette as it swoops over the lake and then past the island and then up over the car just before it goes into the tunnel. And it plays the uh, Wendy Carlos-style Desiree, but with this real, like, this is happening. Oh, my God. And this, for me, is one of the greatest most memorable shots and bits of music in cinema now. This bit in Doctor Sleep now evokes similar feelings for me to Ray zooming over the sandy landscape of Jakku past a fallen Star Destroyer. Because it's got this, like they've held back on the Overlook for so long. So as we go soaring through the air, this is operatic. It is a shadowy, supernatural epic coming full circle. You know, hotel in darkness, blanketed in snow, everything frozen and solid, much like the spirits held in their boxes. Mm. And it's just got this, like, incredible gothic crescendo that it reaches. Mm. And I was just like, okay, I'm totally down for this ending. Our studying it for, for this series has left me very familiar with the Overlook, so to be able to go back to its carcass and wander around its halls was spine-tingling. Versus the book, this absolutely trounces the... Uh, yeah, we kind of went to the area and there was a sort of a burned out shell and a platform there and we didn't really want to go and, you know, deal with it. Mm. And what this sequence, this whole act does is merges and unifies the themes of The Shining book, the imagery of The Shining film mm. and the themes and imagery of Dr. Sleep, uh, the book, and then culminates in this astonishing confrontation Danny with the Overlook Abra with Rose and Danny Danny with Rose, Danny with Abra Danny with himself and the Overlook with all of them mm. Yeah, and also there's a little bit of an element of uh, something that, that King does with, the, with it where they have the overlay between what their paths and steps were as children and what their paths are now and in their approach here to the overlook they are effectively 
in the position of Dick Halloran in the original. They are coming at night, they are coming with intent. They know what they're coming to, not exactly, but they know what's potentially there. Um, Which makes the ending even more perfect. Exactly. And it. And, and it, I'm using the P word here, folks. Okay. Um, For me. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but yeah, that sense of, of things converging and merging is extremely strong here. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, in the book, like I said, it's just a platform, and there's a, a bit, of, bit of cheap chicanery where Billy drives up with a, a real doll that looks like Abra in his car so that they can fool the true knot. And it's like, if you actually thought this would fool them, then you have utter contempt for these boobs. And it does kind of fool them for a bit. It does. It's a, it's a, ki- a mannequin of a kid that they've bought from a going-out-of-business toy shop on the way up. Um, and it's. I'm imagining Slappy from Goosebumps at this point with a wig on. It's. it's Who are you calling a dummy? The way dummy. it's flat. I mean, it's not. It's not really flagged what they're planning to do with it, but it's such a out of left field thing for them to do on yeah. the way here. And I, I, I get it. You kind of have to have it beforehand because otherwise. If it just turns up when they actually enact the plan, it's like, well, that was awfully convenient that that was the thing that you didn't mention that was totally key to how this plan was going to play So you mean, like, the trial was to play Joust? Luckily, I spent all summer playing Joust. I couldn't possibly comment. (laughs) Um, Because that would be terrible writing. But at the same time, when they stop and buy it, you then get very preoccupied with, well, what the fuck do they want this for? I mean, it's obviously... Something to do with Abra. Should have been a Chucky doll. One of those good guys. <laughs> Just wind it up and set it off in the hotel. Yeah, Just actually, so... Kill yeah. what you find, dude. When, so when Rose turns up, Chucky just goes... Just <laughs> straight at her with a fucking axe. <laughs> Take her out of the ankles. They kind of do. There's a little bit of gauge in here. Yeah, for, for the, yeah a uh, little yeah. bit. Okay, so the other weird trap is that Rose brings Silent Sari up, the one who is... Um, somewhat mentally deficient, and uh, says, you want revenge for Andy, right? And uh, Sari's like, yes. So she's she's like, right, wait in this shed, and then when one of them comes in, you stab them. Mm -hmm. And Dan has thought of this already and puts a lovely party, isn't it? Uh, What's his name? Horace Derwent. Horace Derwent. The box with Horace Derwent, mentally, in the shed. So uh, all all that happens with this trap that's like, you know, when you say there is a bomb under this table and it will explode, you have their attention. But then luckily there was a bomb disarming man in there already. It's like, well, that that was pointless. Pointless. (laughs) (laughs) So this sense of dread of what's Sari going to do, who's she going to hurt, injure, or even take out of this whole story Mm. becomes kind of, well, luckily we set a trap for this trap. Mm. Wasn't that lucky? Anyway, um, so what happens on this platform in the book is uh, the the Overlook Hotel gets hold of Dan in the story and he starts to choke Abra and Abra says, you're not, this is not you, this is a false face, this is just the Overlook. And he stops. It's a very quick, intense scene, but I don't think I was ever convinced he was going to kill her. I was just like, okay, so this they they go back to the take your medicine scene at the very beginning when he's beating the crap out of a guy in a bar. That's something that his father, Jack, in the... Uh, don't drink that, father! No! It's vacant water! <laughs> that his father, Jack Torrance, would say, 
um, before abusing his child. It's it's horrendous and it's horrific and it's uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. But the uh, the point is that Danny is sort of becoming the worst aspects of his father while he's here. And then he shakes it off, much like Dick Halloran shakes off the urge at the end of the original Shining book. Like It'll try when it doesn't have a usable vessel to use an unusable one. Mm. And then Abra and Rose shout at each other. And then she and Danny just push Rose off a cliff. And the, it's, it's a bit of a strain. There's kind of a Yoda versus Palpatine, like pushing each other with the force and going like that. But eventually, like... That something else helps them, and Rose goes tumbling over the edge, bashes her head on a rock, and is dead. And then Danny looks out over the uh, platform, and it's Jack Torrance, who smiles at his son and says, I love you, Danny. And that made you cry. Mm. Because that's a redemption for uh, the wretched man from the book. But very wisely, I think, they didn't bother even trying that with this Jack Nicholson version of Jack Torrance. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah that's that's how that uh, somewhat of a letdown Stephen King and his goddamn endings uh, <laughs> happened in the uh, book I think when people complain about Stephen King's endings I can still ha- latch onto the philosophy of his slightly bungled endings like the the the, bi- the end of it still had resonance with me mm. because of the sense of melancholy yeah. and and the, the end of uh, The Shining still had resonance with me. Yeah. I, I don't think I would call his endings bungled. What they are is very confused mm. and often a little bit more complicated than is satisfying, particularly for a horror story. And I think this is one of the reasons why um, something that I've kind of realised about King is that I far prefer his stories that are more horror fantasy than the ones that are just straight, pure and simple horror stories. Right. Because those do not contain what he's good at, which is creating and weaving complex situations. That's also They tend to be more like Penny Dreadfuls. Yeah. Uh, and that's that that kind of complex life integrating, you know what, everything is way more complicated and messed up and, and confusing than we would like to think it is. That doesn't necessarily translate into a two-hour film very well either. And I think that's possibly one of the reasons why, up until recently, with uh, Andy Machete's It!, the best interpretations of Stephen King's stories were interpretations of his short stories. Yeah. The Shawshank Redemption and Stand By Me are two of the absolute finest Stephen King adaptations in existence. And they are based on novellas, not full-length doorstop Mm. complication machines. Interestingly, The Green Mile is a serialised short book series Mm. and it's very episodic in tone, the Frank Darabont film, but it is again very accomplished because of the fact that it's like episode, 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 episode. Almost like Kubrick could have done that. We need a bit here and then another bit and then another bit. Mm. But that all comes together. It it feels like a saga when you're watching it appropriately, but it doesn't have that, the requirements of getting one book out. And there are are times when I'm uh, absorbing King that it's like, there's so much in here Mm. that probably didn't need to be in here. Yeah, yeah. And it feels like, 
had he been able to tighten it, just tighten it up, just <laughs> go back over and go back over and, and go, right, what does this really mean? What does this really accomplish? And I see this film as being able to, because he was very close to the promotional side of this. This is very much Stephen King's Dr. Sleep. I see this film as being able to go back to the book of Dr. Sleep and go, right, if we had to incorporate these elements of Kubrick's film and then also just focus and focus distill distill it's the distillation the, the the stuff in the book to like to give everything because if we're going to film it it's going to have to have a point mm-hmm. and that by no means uh, is the ethos of every filmmaker mm-hmm. but in this case it was if we're going to put this in it has to be for a reason yeah. and there is a far more accomplished closing off and resolution of themes in the film than either of the books mm-hmm. for yeah. me yeah, but I think, yeah, that, that kind of the lengthiness and the meandering is one of the things that can be really, really good about the books if that's the way you're absorbing it, but it's really hard to translate. And one of my favourites of his is The Stand. And every time I hear that somebody's thinking about doing some kind of screen version of The Stand, I'm like, That's luck. not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> we might be eating our words at some point, but it's, uh, maybe you know. I saw an article, are there too many Stephen King adaptations at the moment? It's like, you're asking that now when they're good? That's like, it's like looking at a menu and going, are there too many steaks? <laughs> I mean, obviously, yeah, that means the cod isn't getting so much attention. Mm. But like, these are good steaks, Brent. <laughs> Except for that one, which is just ground chuck pet cemetery. You don't want to bury that ground chuck? What came back? Weren't human. Indeed. And it didn't taste very nice either. And it stinks like the grave it was buried in! (laughs) That's an actual screamed line from the uh, earlier version of Pet Cemetery. Oh, I'd forgotten. 60% of the time, it works every time. Smells like Bigfoot's dick! Oh, so uh, in the film, rather than just going hanging around on a platform, Danny goes all the way into the Overlook, starts up the boiler, which was a perfect replica of the one that Shelley Duval was fiddling in with. And film. you at the time when we covered it, you were like, that's not the boiler. I was like, yes, it is. Mm. And as it turns out, yes, it was. And that was a very key uh, set, yeah. as it turned out. Mm. Just this throwaway moment of just, like, oh, well, they, they mentioned the boiler in the book. I guess we can sort of... Like put a boiler scene in there. Thank God they did because Indeed. that's from a from a technical perspective. By the way, I will say this now: their recreation of Kubrick's sets is amazing. Adding nearly forty years worth of decay as well. Yeah, yeah, and and little adaptations to enable them to tell their own story around it. And it 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 felt like the same place, but being interpreted by someone else, which is exactly what it's it's meant to represent. Yeah. And so we wander these uh, uh, rotting hallways, and you know, always expecting to see something, and we don't really. We uh, we we just we we just get the uh, flashes of the architecture, and the, the, those lights start to illuminate. It's this. It's a haunted house, and it's so fucking gothic this time. <laughs> it's so like returning to this place. That there's something disarming about the fact that Kubrick's version is set in an active hotel. Mm. That's. Um, 
Like it should be like you're you're told people come and go and stay in rooms and sleep and eat food there and some are there. But then when you see what goes on during this period of isolation, you're like, how can anyone stay in this place? It's hell on toast. I I am going to be honest with you, and I'm going to say something now that I have never said to you in the entire time that we've been. You'd love to stay in the Shining Hotel. Good God, no, no, the complete opposite. I hate hotels. They terrify me. All hotels. Most hotels. Because of this. Partly because of this. Because I I think I absorb a little bit too much horror when I was a kid and hotels are always this anonymous place of dread in the things that I've absorbed. So it, when I find that there are occasions when we've been to stay in a hotel and I've been like, oh my God, this is lovely. This is absolutely magic. Mm. That's really overcoming the weight of decades of being scared of large buildings with multiple occupancy that nobody is really accountable for. I now feel like uh, we we could do something that they should have done in Jackass, which is, hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville, welcome to the Overlook, and then these adult men jump onto these big wheel bikes and barrel around the hallways, <laughs> getting in everybody's way. We recorded a Jackass show, folks. That one's coming soon. Did I mention our audience both times were in absolute rapt attention during these moments? Riveted by the silence. What Danny finds uh, when he goes into the golden ballroom uh, is uh, a man posing effectively as Lloyd at the bar. And it's he is offered whiskey by the bartender and he says, this was your drink. And Danny knows immediately he's talking to Jack Torrance and he's filmed from the side. And I wondered when I first saw the promotion for this stuff, are they going to be able to use Jack Nicholson's likeness? And they don't use Shelley Duvall's likeness. There's, uh, his, his mother is uh, uh, quite an, a, a chameleonic performance, actually, mm. on her part. She even runs like Shelley Duvall with a sort of flapping arms. Yeah, did you notice who else she looks like, though? Elizabeth Banks. Rebecca de Mornay. A little bit. A little bit. She, she looks like a blend of Duvall and de Mornay, and I thought that was a really nice touch. De Mornay played Shelley in the 1997 TV version we mentioned when we covered The Shining, much closer to the book less weak and hysterical. It wasn't that I couldn't empathise with Shelley throughout every viewing of the Kubrick version, but that the world was so far removed from ours, I didn't know how to connect or how to feel. And now I just feel bad for Shelley Duvall, the actress. Though I suspect next time I watch, there'll be an overlay of Alex Esso, who plays Shelley in Doctor Sleep. Henry Thomas plays the bartender, a ghostly apparition in the Overlook Hotel who introduces himself as Lloyd but resembles Jack Torrance, Dan's father. Thomas also portrays Jack in a flashback sequence. Jack and Lloyd were portrayed in The Shining by Jack Nicholson and Joe Turkell, respectively. So he's having a one-to-one with his father. Now, as soon as we put out The Shining episode, people started asking us, what do you think of the reincarnation theory? The reincarnation theory is... The reason Jack Nicholson appears in that giant group photograph at the end of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is that the character he plays, Jack Torrance, is a reincarnation of someone who worked there in 1921. Now, I can understand why people would want to make sense of what is nonsensical. They're seeing something that can't adhere to physics. 
and I'd love to see what those There Are No Ghosts in the Shining people make of that. Now to me, how can this be the case? Ah, well, it's because he's a reincarnation. Actually makes The Shining a lot less scary, and it makes the You've Always Been Here a lot less unsettling. It's more unsettling if you don't have an answer, if you don't have an easy box to put it in. There's definitely implications in the book that there's some sort of time nexus going on whereby everything's all happening at the same time, kind of like the way Dr. Manhattan thinks in The Overlook. And it's a really good metaphor for ghosts that can't move on, or ghosts that can't face the terrible things they've done, or people who can't move on or face the terrible things they've done, because they're dwelling always in the present intensely, because the past fucking terrifies them, and yet they live there too. So there can be no future. Which is why Abra is the opposite of that. Which is kind of perfect with Kubrick's hold and intensity. But another theory that seems to be corroborated by the film of Doctor Sleep, though it never says anything explicitly, is that the Overlook is collecting these souls. It's storing them the way that Danny is storing aggressive spirits, mostly the denizens of the Overlook, in his own head in lockboxes. It is a giant moor. It is Pennywise. And Rose is Pennywise, but she's a little Pennywise inside a massive Pennywise, which plays into what happens to her here. And it wanted to eat Danny when he was a little defenseless five-year-old boy. And it was using Jack to get Danny, and Jack failed and was consumed himself. And I collected him, and dwells there now, always in the present, which to us is now the past. I prefer to keep it loose, because if there's questions still left to address and look at, then there's always going to be layers left to explore. If we put it in a box, we can just close the lid on it and just let it stay down there. But we're better be damn sure we put it in the right box or that thing's going to scratch at us. Scraping at the door! Scraping at the door! And they don't get to do this in either book. Adult Danny sat down with adult Jack. So this to me was a triumph. Just this moment of Ewan McGregor's quiet, reasoned, wearied performance. And they make the decision to not play any score at this stage. And mm-hmm. um, you could have heard a pin drop in the uh, audience. I will reiterate once again the power of this film. I've c- complained bitterly about uh, rowdy, unhelpful cinema audiences who just don't seem to really want to engage. They just want to be on their phones before. Both times I saw this, they were good as gold. Absolutely rapt attention the whole time. It's kind of amazing could have had a pin drop. Danny talks through with his dad his, uh, he admits to his weakness for alcohol. He's already, being being at an Alcoholics Anonymous, talked about being able to stand there, was it nine years sober? Uh, Yes, I think so, by the the time the events of the the film play out. He uh, says, this is for my father, who managed to get to five months and wanted to be able to be sober for that long. This is an achievement. And again, Danny has this sweetness, gentleness, and understanding about him that when the aggression starts to come out of him at certain times, it's just very fleeting, and it's all his father. 
But it's there, and it's a part of Danny, and he can't avoid it forever. So he speaks to uh, uh, Henry Thomas as, uh, as Jack, who we only see from the side with this disgusting syrupy hair sticking uh, down exactly like uh, Jack. And again, it's so much less distracting for them to not paste a digital face over... Because all you think about when you're watching that sort of stuff is that's not that person. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Is There's no distraction to it. They don't give you him full face on so that your thoughts aren't going to be, oh, haven't they done a good job in casting somebody yeah. who looks exactly like Jack Nicholson? Or haven't they done a reasonable job but he doesn't really look like Jack Nicholson? Mm. It's it's not the point. And also... You do get a face on right near the end of that sequence just before he grabs the glass himself and swigs yeah, it in an angry fashion. Towards the end. And the Overlook has conjured for Danny here the ghost of his father's resentment. Snarls at uh, the adult Dan um, that a man provides. And then these mouths come along and you're supposed to give your wife and child this sustenance. I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something along the lines of, and they eat your time. And... uh, to his credit, Henry Thomas actually gives a relatively subdued mm. performance. He could have gone all out, like a Jack Nicholson impression. Yeah, but he doesn't. And it's and it emphasises the fact that, like I said, this is not really Jack. It is the hotel and the, uh, the anger and resentment and negativity that's within the hotel, which admittedly now incorporates Jack's anger and resentment and negativity. Mm-hmm. But it is that collective spirit manifesting through Jack's face. Yeah. Admittedly, while it would have been distracting to see a de-aged Jack Nicholson face digitally reproducing Jack Nicholson 1980, if he had been performed by a de-aged Nicholson, I suspect that might have nudged this film towards an it-level smash hit. My guess is... They couldn't afford Jack Nicholson with this budget, or Jack Nicholson said no, or Mike Flanagan just wanted to get by without that hook. Or, thematically speaking, that's effectively applying a false face to the real deal, which works counter to what this scene's supposed to be about. But the fact that it's not done gangbusters at the box office makes me wonder what it would have been like with that hook. Not necessarily better, but definitely more successful. And once again, appropriately, a skewed way of measuring success plays into this entire scene. And what he's effectively doing is smashing to pieces this male mythology of you have to be put the provider, you have to do this, this and this, otherwise you are less of a man, which again goes back to the toxic masculinity of the original Shining book where it's, you know, we don't think you have the belly for it, sir. Indeed. And honestly, if you're going to look at it that way, Jack Torrance probably would have been much, much happier if he'd never been, never got married, never had a kid, had just been allowed to go through his life writing to his heart's content and drinking whenever he felt like it and not hurting anybody. Yeah. So Jack Torrance's ghost goes on about white man's burden and taking your medicine, which he equates with both the drink and the aggressive violence. Mm. All of which he has absorbed from his own father, albeit that that's not really explored in the films, but yeah. When he's talking about these two open mouths demanding from him, I'm like, just 
leave. Yeah. Leave like all those dads did in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Just be a fucking deadbeat. It's better than inflicting yourself upon your family until you're killing them. And then Rose appears at the uh, door and Abra runs in to uh, uh, connect with Dan so that they can at least lie in wait for her. And there is something incredibly cinematic about the look of uh, Rose the Hat. She's assuming that she has an elegance to her and she's sort of walking around in that kind of curious way. And she, she's one of the most evil characters in literature and film. But yeah, Rose the Hat, it feels like you could have a really fascinating conversation with her or get very close to her, and then she'd probably kill you. And she totally deserves to be taken out of the world because she's terrible and awful and uh, baleful spectre of death. Yes. But at the same time, she's weirdly personable. So they confront Rose in the famous Colorado Lounge. Yes. And uh, the typewriter's still there. We don't get to see all work and no play, mm. but uh, it's still there. And the chair's fallen over. No one picked it up. So they, uh, that suggests because they boarded this place up and, and just left it in disrepair, they turned up, carted Jack away, and went, this is fucked, and closed the doors. I'm pretty sure they say his body was never found. Oh, shit. Even better. I can't the hotel what, ate him. Yeah, I can't remember whether that's in the That's in the deleted the- scene at the end of the... Um, uh, original Kubrick movie, which ah, he removed after the first few weeks of it being in the oh, cinema. Okay. okay, that might be where that's coming yeah. from then. But yeah, either way, it suggests that Ab- they were like, okay, so another caretaker tried to kill his family again. Fuck it. At <laughs> <laughs> this point, recruitment's going to be really hard, so let's not bother. Danny's standing with the axe on the stairs, and Abra's with him, and. It's this, like, sort of, again, that gunslinger thing as Rose starts to walk towards them. And then they send her into the maze, which is, in fact, Dan's subconscious, and she's running around, and Abra's in there, and she, like, slices at her tendons, uh, much like Gage Creed, to uh, weaken her so that Dan can sneak up with a box. It's kind of comical, the way that that scene plays out, because there's this sort of stalking presence behind Rose, and you're like, oh, shit, what's that? It looks like the spectre of death. But it's a giant box! on its side going, ah, like Audrey 2 behind her, ah, and Rose is like, fuck this. Pulls herself out of the maze and then um, confronts Dan and Abra runs. And she's like, hey, handsome, why have we never met you? And I would imagine it's because uh, he, they missed him when he was young and then as an adult he's been drowning and dulling himself. Yes, shining absolutely. They do talk in the book about how... Um, they very rarely go after adults with the shine mm. uh, because... Which makes them even worse because they specifically prey on children, children like yeah. Pennywise. It's, it's purer, basically. Um, the uh, I think they mentioned something about the worry of leaving Abra to be until she's older and stronger is that they might take her to a shrink and give her pills that will dull it. No, 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 and no, no, no. Giving Paxil to this girl would be like throwing saran wrap on a spotlight. Exactly. Um, but there is that suggestion that uh, substances 
including medicinal ones, will reduce the power of it, and certainly getting older will muddy it and cloud it. And, and I mean, they do talk about the fact that Danny's shining is not as strong as an adult as it was when he was a kid. Mm. Um, but the but being around Abra seems to amplify it and sharpen it up a hell of a lot. Absolutely, and it's not as if they can't get steam from adults. It, they, there's mention in the book of them going around and trying to be in places where disasters are happening. Yeah. Because oh God, I forgot that. Yeah. Yeah. This is incredibly poor taste, but we're going to say it anyway because it's yeah. like a what it, the fuck. It's Steve totally moment. right that it is not in the film in any yeah. way, shape, or form. The true knot turned up in New York City at around the time of 9/11 and breathed in the steam coming from all of the people dying in that particular disaster. Yeah. Basically, the theory behind it is that when a large number of people die in a small area. Odds are some of them will have some shining, and so there will be a quantity of steam coming off this disaster. It also reads like they're just absorbing the trauma of the disaster. Yeah, it's fucking gross, and it's one too far, Steve. Mm. But uh, okay, moving on. They don't, he doesn't dwell on it too much. No, it's, it just shows how mm. bad they are, basically. Uh, he's trying to give us a time and a place and show us the history between 1977 through to 2013 yeah. when the book is set. There's, there's also that. But you could just name a fictional disaster that's Indeed. a bit similar. Yeah, that trauma and that event kind of kicks off Abra's shine because she's only just been born and she has dreams about the incident and <sighs> beams elements of it into her parents' heads. Right, okay, got it. So Rose stalks up the stairs towards Dan, who's backing up in the position of his mother, but holding the axe this time rather than a baseball bat. And she's doing that sort of, honey, darling, light of my life. But she's trying to bring him over. She's like, you know, join me and together we can end this destructive conflict. I, I think she's just like very aware of the fact that whether he says yes or no, it's a really great intimidation tactic to get him to back up and then catch him unawares. Yeah. And there's that great moment of when... Um, Danny wheels back the axe to slam it down on her. It does the same exact Kubrick camera movement of l wrenching to the left and then back to the right again. It does. They do that twice in the movie. But there's one thing I noticed about the key differences between the camera movements is uh, possibly because Kubrick was limited by the fact that he had to have things on dollies and... and he had the inventor stick. of the Steadicam with him. Well, he did, but there's a lot more movement in the cameras in Doctor Sleep and that's one of the things that made me feel like it was warmer. It felt more like actual people made this rather than a robot that you programmed to be a director. Mm. Or a robot's ghost. That's probably the best way to say it. The Shining was shot by a robot's ghost. Rose pins him down after cutting his femoral artery with the other side of the axe and I've seen Ewan McGregor lying on the ground screaming in pain while being impaled in Shallow Grave. And it, that's one of the most disturbing films I ever saw as a teenager. Mm. The Shining had nothing on Shallow Grave. And it, it was weird that that moment was being evoked here. And again, because we're at the Overlook, rather than just saying, OK, so it's, it's two psychics against each other, Danny... Like, she starts to suck his steam out as, he, as he's in intense pain, and then he unlocks all the boxes at once. Mm. And she says, you got something in there. Tell me, what are they? And then he says, starving. And all of the ghosts from The Shining all suddenly appear at once, and they fucking dogpile Rose. 
And it's a gross, terrifying scene. It's especially gross because the two twin girls are there, like, really going in there. And it reminded me of Brian Yuzna's Society. Mm. It reminded me of uh, The Thing uh, by, uh, by John Carpenter. You know the bit where... Um, I won't say who because it's better to not know who's who in the thing. If you've never seen the thing, see the thing. A certain person puts his fucking hand into another person's face at the end. And it's just like... Like that. And it's, it's like... Rose gets her hand in her face. I think by the racist butler, I couldn't be sure. Mm, yeah, but it's it's very visually evocative and clear that they are absorbing her. But there's there's very little going on in the way of visual steam. What they are absorbing is her flesh. Yeah, but like she's effect. She's cycling into them. Yeah, like they are taking it all really, really fucking fast. Yeah, and the the, the um, that ties in with this sense that the Overlook is collecting all of these these people who've mm. maybe they all were, had shining to a point. Maybe that's why the Overlook has absorbed them all and how it's been able to do so. Mm. Um, I like the fact that they're not conclusive about it. Yeah, it's more it's haunting. Very, it's this vague. is one of those things that it is better not to know and to have just symbolically yeah. uh, various readings. Mm, absolutely. But it, it's sort of that idea that she is um, she's being... Hoist on her own petard, which is a phrase that they use in the book on purpose. Little and bit over on the nose. Again. Yes. Yes. Set that <laughs> petard up over there. I'm about to hoist myself on it. <laughs> um, but it does emphasise that that thing about you know if you live by the absorbing the death pains of other people, then guess how you're going out, lady. The actual, when she's got Dan uh, down and is like penetrating his leg and sucking the uh, steam out, it's a rape scene. It's really uncomfortable. It's horrible. And again, that like the, her comeuppance is also terrifying whilst being weirdly satisfying. It's, it's an unusual blend of horror. Mm. I suppose it's a little bit like um, what happens at the end of The Devil's Backbone, but on a grander, more operatically awful scale. Yeah. And it's, it's got that sense of melancholy to it because it doesn't matter at this stage what happens to that person. It doesn't undo the things they've done. Yeah. Um, but Effectively, it's just feeding other terrible vampires. Yeah, but in a way, it's like you resisted empathy your whole life. You had to have done because otherwise you couldn't have done the things that you've done. Yeah. But in your death, by God, are we going to make you feel those people? Yeah. And uh, then all of the ghosts turn around and go, right, that was the fucking appetizer, and then go after Danny, which is what they wanted to do all along. Mm. Just go after this kid and suck him dry. Mm. And um, what they eventually end, end up doing is just possessing him. They sort of, like, converge. And he ends up running around the overlook with the axe, limping because of his terrible leg wound, which he's bleeding out from, uh, after Abra. And so we get a re- recreation and a mirroring of that scenario hmm. which is i feel like if they hadn't done that if they had just been the book it would have like the, the book as written if they'd put that on screen would have disappointed a lot of people yeah yeah well it's so like oh they overlook where well, they tore that down it's effectively a happy ending yeah it's a it's a happy ending and it's not too hard one mm. either yeah uh but in the film he's chasing her around and uh, she uh, <laughs> She runs, oh my God, I was like, no, no, please, no, 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 don't go into all the rooms, because she runs past and then sees the twins, then turns around, and then there's that eye, corrected them. What's his name? 
Grady. Grady. The butler. Uh, standing at the end of the corridor. And I'm like, don't go into Dogman's room. <laughs> Fuck no! <laughs> There's shit in there that you do not want to see. Yeah. There is no Dogman in this. Yes, luckily. Very They held choice. back on that. I think they just know, that's ridiculous, let's not touch it. And I think that rather proves conclusively... <laughs> That I'm in line with Dr. Sleep. Mm. If Dogman was in there, it would be, this was the thing that didn't work. Yeah. Unless it was Dogman going, what the fuck am I doing? (laughs) (laughs) This isn't even a dog suit. (laughs) It's a bear. (laughs) It's a bear with long ears. Yeah, so Abra takes uh, shelter in room 237, obviously. Because of course you would. So Danny is placed in exactly the same position that his father Jack Torrance was. He rushes in with the axe, ready to kill this child so that the Overlook can have her. And just like Danny did in the book, she stops him, halts the axe above her head, seemingly carry style, mm. uh, but then just touches his hand very gently, which uh, reminded me of many things, including The Force Awakens. Reminds him who he is, tells the Overlook they don't really have hold of this guy, that there's not enough evil shit inside this man for them to really be able to do what they want with him. She recognises the strength of his character, and it is so important that we have other people to do this for us. She tells the Overlook that Danny has switched on and overloaded the boiler, thus sealing the doom of this building. Danny tells her to run like his father should have done, and runs back to the boiler as the Overlook desperately scrabbles to save its existence. And Dan is able to fight the Overlook one more time, prevent it from venting the boiler, and it takes all of his remaining strength to simply stay and kneel in front of it as the fire grows around him. This doesn't happen in the book, so we were left adding up all the pieces that we had been given, and trying to make sense of the story that was playing out quite differently. Daniel Torrance transforms before our eyes from the middle-aged man he has become to the child he was, and he sees his mother in the flames, smiling. It is a gentle moment of forgiveness. An acceptance of the trauma that's come before, No longer running away from it, no longer trying to fight it, but at the same time, no longer allowing it to have any power over him. And on a grander scale, to balance what they have achieved here, to take the true knot out of the world, to free this child, to leave her not free of predators, but out of direct danger, required a terrible sacrifice. What he's doing here is not throwing his life away. He gave it for Abra. He is accepting death here in a way the True Knot could never do, in a way they would always be too terrified to do. A very simple, very healthy, philosophical conclusion. The old clear the path for the young, hoping that they've done the best they can. Mm. And this all comes back to doing what his father could not do, and that confrontation in the bar. But also, that that interaction is not about Jack it is about Danny facing the version of Jack that is in his head and the version of Jack that is in the hotel because this is this is the other thing about the way this plays out in the film is so much more emphasized for me than it is in the book although the theme is there in the book that the overlook 
is Danny's subconscious. It's his, it's his basement. Past. It's his basement. It's the. It's everything in his life that he tried to leave behind, but is still governing how he behaves. Hence, that's where in the maze he keeps those lock boxes. Because if you remember, the maze was technically his salvation. Yeah. He managed to outwit his father exactly with the walking backwards. Exactly, and so this the the presence of the hotel. And it's still being there, whereas in the book it's gone and all you've got is the ground. The presence of the building itself allows it to very visually represent, okay, if you want to deal with this, if you want to be able to move forward from this, if you want to go in there and burn it all down, you've got to go back there. You can't keep running. Yeah. And... This is what it came down to for me. The boy with a bad father, now grown up and grown apart for so long that even though that man still lives currently, the only version of him that I have left is the one I have in my head. And for over a decade of estrangement, I've had to take up that mantle of father myself. And every time I've given in to anger, I've thought about his lack of control and what a monster he seemed and I pity him but my life is better without his presence all the stress and anger he brought can be frozen away where it can't hurt me or the ones I love he had his own demons to face the version of his father in his head who in turn had the version of his father my great-grandfather all of this culminating in a generational failure to be gentle and kind and supportive We can forgive and we can forget. But the most important task for all of us whose parents were not great is to try to be better. And that takes continual effort and continual introspection and a desire for peace. Even if that means living in peace apart. thread to that, not an alternative, but an additional thread, which is that we see the evidence that the ghosts of the Overlook are not necessarily destroyed by the destruction of the hotel. And it's entirely possible that, in part, he felt that if he tried to leave, they would come with him, even if it was just the memories in his head they would come with him. And that's not something that he was able to take anymore or willing to risk. There is a question mark over the uh, trapping of demons inside your own psyche and the, the, the locking them up, even if they are secure in there. You're effectively taking them out of the world and absorbing them into yourself. You are a vampire... Of sorts, you are leeching out of the world those that leech out of the world, yeah. and it is uh, that inevitably, even simply symbolically, would take a strain on a person. It would, and I think that there there is a next level to that. I suppose that if you really want to um, 
be rid of the energy that is caught up in your internal demons. They cannot simply be ignored. They can be trapped to a degree and they can have their threat diffused, but ultimately you're going to have to face and transform them if you really want them to go. So Abra stands outside the Overlook Hotel as it burns to the ground and she it cuts to her explaining to Dan in her bedroom that she knew that he was okay and that he'd gotten out. He speaks to her reassuringly in the same way that Dick Halloran spoke to him and earlier in the film he says, why me? Because his pull is, I don't want to get involved in this, it's too much, it's too big, why do I have the responsibility to this child? And Dick replies angrily, why me? You came into my life 40 years ago, I'm still on the hook. I'm still looking after you. You can choose not to do it, but if you're going to do it, do it properly. Yeah. And it, it, the phrase he uses is, you have a debt, pay it. Yes. And this is a and debt. And that's what this is. Yeah. This is a debt that you pay forwards, not backwards. He was saved by Dick, who sacrificed his life. This is taking the end of Kubrick's Shining and somehow working those themes into the, uh, the both the book and the film of yeah, Dr. Sleep. Indeed. And the other sacrifices that have been made in protection of Abra as well, Billy and Dave, ultimately, in a way, Dan pays for them so that Abra won't have to. Yeah. And then her mother comes in and says, who are you talking to? And Abra says, nobody. And then she follows her mother out and goes, no, that's not true. Tells her, we go on. There is more. Dick's okay, so we know Dan's okay. So we know that there is a, a way of existing that is not tormented. I love the way Dick re replies that, that, that the world to him now is a dream within a dream. Like he's on several planes of existence removed from it. So talking to Danny becomes more challenging yeah. as well, time he, goes he's, on. Yeah, he makes it clear that he's not coming back to talk to Danny anymore because now he's done what he needed to do. He has to move on. And this might have only been the only bum note in the film. It's not even bum enough to really make me resent it. But Abra tells her mother all of this. And Abra's mother, I don't know if you noticed in the film, is kind of scared of her and never really... Like, they never really embrace. Mm. And she tells all of this stuff... And it's, I was watching it the second time, I was like... She said, you came to the place where they buried her. Asked her a question. She said, the answer is, every day. That is one of the finest moments in ghost story cinema, and they are effectively evoking it here. And the mum looks at her daughter and goes, good, and then goes downstairs. <laughs> it's like, really? No, no, no embrace, nothing, no, you know, I'm no longer scared of you, my child. Like all of that, like coming out to your parents and, and saying, no, I, I, got, I got a shining mom. She won't accept that. And, I, and the second time I was like, yeah, some parents just aren't gonna. <laughs> 
and you're gonna have to just be able to get by in the world. And that's why immediately afterwards, Abra goes, "Wait, wait I got to go do a thing before coming down for tea," and uh, goes into the bathroom where that fucking old woman's getting out of the tub. Tub girl's back. And uh, Abra's just like, why, fucking hell, and closes the door. And we're like, okay, she can look after herself the way Dan did. So we're like, Abra's going to be okay. But because of what happened with Dan, there is more of a question of, but is she going to be okay long term? Which the book ending way to, you know, well, isn't that swell? They tie every bow nicely, yeah. Oh, and also we're related. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it does end on that bittersweet note, we lose Dan. He's now out of the shining Stephen King movie universe. They could have another, um, they could move forwards and have the fucking ghost of Rose come back. More to the point, he could come back as the ghost of Obi-Wan. Appropriate! I, I kind of hope they don't, but if they do and we follow Abra to the next step, maybe in 40 years' time, well, the, the, I'm fine with that. The way I kind of interpreted the, the presence of Mrs. Massey at the end there is that Abra has had her own experience with that woman. So Dan's ghosts don't come out of the Overlook. She's, in a way, that's a different version of Mrs. Massey that... Abra encountered and that's why she's brought her with her and that kind of emphasizes that element of are they ghosts or are they memories well ultimately it doesn't matter Um, and that kind of makes me feel a bit like Rose isn't going anywhere because she was not um, Abra's experience of her is I walked straight through that woman I she has no real fear for me. You have no power over me. Yeah, exactly. She doesn't need to put Rose in a lockbox. You know, if Rebecca Ferguson can sing, she could play quite a good Jareth. Oh my god, yes! (laughs) Yes, Rebecca Ferguson for the Goblin Queen in a Labyrinth remake. Totally here for that. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, David Sheely, Kevin Vahey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gesiger, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finn Barnicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dackler, and Lorraine Cheshire. In addition to this episode, I heartily recommend you track down the Escape to the Movies Doctor Sleep Review by Movie Bob. It's very personal, very moving, disarmingly so. He made me up my game for this. And he said something that I'd never really considered about Kubrick's Shining, that it is a movie... Well, I knew that it was angry and sad, but he said it is a movie afraid of itself. And that just... Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. In terms of processing what's actually going on on screen, 
and what's going on behind that. It is a movie afraid of itself. To a degree, I feel like one of the major reasons Stephen King hated Kubrick's version was that he put quite a lot of himself into Jack Torrance, maybe more than he'd like to admit, and having Kubrick paint him as this furious villain just hurt too much. So just like Bob, I hope this has brought Stephen King some peace, because it's been a long, long time. Uh, you pointed out that um, the uh, end of the book with uh, uh, Jack Torrance apologizing to Danny, saying he always loved him, was kind of King letting himself off the hook for a, little bit. a bit of his not, behavior around his kids, maybe? Not or? massively, but just to the extent that, like I said, the book seemed to be a, a take from the, the patient's perspective. And, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say that that's wrong, because ultimately, if that's where you stand in this particular equation, you have to be able to forgive yourself in order to be able to move forwards. Um, but I do think that there's, um, and we talked about this when we, we did The Shining, there's an element of uh, attempted relatability, let's say, about Jack in the original book, and that it's the hotel that's really taken him down, whereas Kubrick presents us with this guy who is a complete shit to begin with. Yeah. And that this sequel does not allow Jack that redemption, I think is absolutely fair. And in keeping and with in the keeping world that we with have, yeah. the original Shining and also in the spirit of decomplicating things. Yeah. So yeah, this film floored me and I actually rushed out of the cinema the first time because I was like, I don't want someone to stand up at the back and go, Well, what well, well, fucking shit. Um, and but apparently they, Nobody were, did. they were fine. No. Yeah. They, the, the silence kind of carried on. There was a little bit of muttering, but I didn't hear anything about the film itself. Mm. I think people were still absorbing it. Yeah. There's a, a weird parallel thinking about it with um, new Star Wars with this as well. I'm going to leave it at that, but it, it, it seems like they're telling the same story. Same with new Terminator. Mm. There's a lot, a lot of generational parables going on right now. And it could be that we're just more sensitised to, uh, to to want to see things and stories that way because that's what we desperately need right now. Yeah. But I think they're there. Yeah, if you know where to look. And far too often they get overlooked. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. out. Yes, I understand that every life must be end uh-huh. As we sit alone, I know someday we must go uh-huh. Oh, I'm a lucky man to count on both hands the ones I love Some folks just have one, yeah they got none oh, oh. Stay with me oh, Let's just breathe Practice all my sins Never gonna let me win oh, oh. 
under everything Just another human being oh, Yeah, I don't want to hurt There's so much in this world to make me Did I say that I need you? Did I say that I want you? Or if I didn't, I'm a fool, you see No one knows this more than me Cause I come clean, I wonder every day As I look upon your face, oh, oh. Everything you gave and nothing you would take on Nothing you would take Everything you give Did I say that I need you? Oh, did I say that I want you? Oh, if I didn't, I'm a fool knows this more than me, I come cleaner, nothing you would take. I'll meet you on the other side